For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Welcome back to Her Tell. Okay, he's one of our favorites. We've just never had to call him this before because he was working under his gimmick, the artist formerly known as Jericho Hill, Stephen Popick, uh, an economist at one of those four-letter, not three-letter uh, places of government. I don't know. Should we say malfeasance, fiscal fortitude? What do you say? What do you call those kind of organizations where it's a bunch of letters and a lot of government money? Uh, great employment. Great employment. Good work if you can get it, as they would say in the business. Uh, great to see you, buddy. He uh, had been writing anonymously. Some things happened in his life. He is now out. I got exposed. a couple of publications that uh, raised the profile a bit, so I decided that it was time to uh, take on a new name. Yep, and he's got a very high-profile thing we're going to talk about on some future episode just as soon as the legal stuff gets cleared up. We'll get to that hopefully in a couple of weeks. My uh, friend, spoiler, spoiler alert, I think we're going to be cleared up. Good deal. I can't wait. Let, tease it, tease it, tease it. Don't don't, don't, don't give away the ending just yet. Over um, the summer, I had the opportunity to uh, serve as a testifying expert in a, in a trial. Yeah, I can't wait to get into that with you, too. We'll get you back on that pretty soon. But let's go to your Ballywick. Let's talk some economics the cpi came out let's start with the nomenclature because everybody freaked out um a lot of people got a lot of clicks and notice over it i just took the little um first page reading of it and i just read it straight on this program because i thought that was the fairest way to do it because i thought it was actually pretty concise and pretty easy to understand if you just read the press release now the actual report's like 27 pages of pdf so that's a little more detailed tell people what this is why it matters and what it does as far as it goes to inflation yeah, so the, that, I think that's great, Andrew. And I think it's nice to say that, yeah, the CPI press release that the BLS puts out is, is designed to be understandable for non-geeky numbers people like me. So we we were hoping that CPI would fall. Um, we were hoping that the gas prices uh, and other energy changes and some of these other supply chain issues working themselves out would Finally, we'd see those pressures that we've been seeing building to, you know, push the CPI down and it would get pushed down. And the good news is that, yeah, the things that we expected to push it down were pushing the CPI down. The sort of want, want moment uh, is that shelter costs really started to drive the CPI going up. And though the changes in shelter costs, that's, that's your housing, that's your rent were large enough that they overwhelmed the good news from, say, gas prices falling. So we actually saw that inflation uh, essentially was unchanged. It rose just slightly on a year-over-year -year basis. And 
just to complete the picture, the most concerning item that I'm seeing in the CPI right now is that from March to July, we were watching what we call core CPI. That's the CPI after we subtract out food cost and energy cost, and we subtract those out because those are very volatile, right? Gas prices can go up and down because OPEC does something, you know? Uh, food prices can go up and down because there's a salmonella outbreak somewhere. So we are seeing these, these the CPI, less food and energy, what we call core CPI, going down. And it was doing that in July. So we were hoping and expecting to see core CPI continue to decline in August. And then we could start popping champagne. And that's not what happened. Core CPI actually had a pretty decent-sized jump. So headline inflation went down, driven by energy and gas prices. But core, that not volatile section, reversed the trend of declining and started and has now gone back up. That that's really disappointing for someone like me who thought that you know we really should be getting over this hump now. We, Let's put this in not. the context because we've been talking about the COVID stuff a lot. It's like what is involved there, what's not involved there, and then of course we talk about you know things that are outside of our control, like the war in Ukraine that Russia perpetrated against the Ukrainian people that they're now getting their butt kicked in, thank God. Our friend Joey Politano actually put a really good chart together on this. And I'm going to link to this chart. So for the radio audience, though, I'm going to, I'm going to explain it, but we'll put it on the screen for the YouTube folks. The pandemic prices, food, energy, core goods, core services, the four kind of big important things in your life, right? You can see on this chart, 2000, when the pandemic really bit, energy went through the floor. Of course, nobody's going anywhere, so energy prices go down. Um, core goods, the prices actually went down a little bit. Of course, not people aren't buying as much because they're not going out as much. Food prices were pretty level, and that all stayed pretty in line with before the, the pandemic. And then in spring of 2021, so the last 18 months really is what we're talking here, it just starts climbing. And energy is a big chunk of that. The food cost is a big chunk of that. The core goods is a big chunk of that. And then the core services underneath all that. You touched on it briefly, but the number that really threw everybody off was, is they're like, well, the energy cost is going to go down. That should bring everything else down. Well, the energy did tick down, but the food still went up and the core goods still went up and the core services still went up. And that's the problem here that's got everybody in a loop on this metric, isn't it? And and we're also looking at a rail strike happening in a few days, Andrew. Amtrak just came out and announced that they're basically shutting down their operations outside of the Northeast Corridor. We know it's going to affect freight prices. And uh, I'm not sure how many people are aware, but a lot of our goods move on freight, right? Maybe we forget that, but there's a lot of freight. Yeah, and I'm a transportation guy by trade so i know that the intermodal ports are actually already shutting down because they have to cover what's called surge time uh so they're already shutting down because they only got so much room to store stuff so that's go- like every every time we think that we're getting through this thing right something else pops up and you just sort of reset it again it's very very frustrating you know especially from those policy protections like you know you couldn't predict that we we're going to have this railroad strike happen you know, that's going to affect food and it's going to affect appliance costs and other and other sort of durable uh, goods items. Right. Right. Now, this does blast a hole in one running narrative is like, well, this is all gas prices. I know when you've been on here before, you pointed to, well, it's energy prices and used cars are the kind of the two that you were looking at. Well, 
here that's not holding up now because now the energy prices are going down used car prices actually ticked down a little bit which is good because they were the highest they've ever been in recorded history it was very very high both of those have gone down that's not what's fueling the food and cost of living increases so no. what is pushing it then well um some would say wages right uh would be translating that and certainly if, if the price of labor is going up that would cause uh, the price of goods to go up. Uh, I think it still seems that we're not out of our supply chain issues at all. So I, I think that that is still driving the the price of these goods up. Um, you know, and you know we are still emptying our pocketbooks from the surplus of spending that we got uh, from the pandemic, right? And that amount of cash was flush in consumers' pockets, and folks had. Pretty good vibes about the uh, about their personal economy, not the national economy, but the personal economy. So they were spending, uh, and that helped drives thing that that helps drive costs up as well, you know. And then, you know, so I still think that those will shake out over time, and they should. But I think over time, I need to now instead of thinking months, I might be talking a year or two. So I, I kind of have to own uh, a forecasting failure here. Um, and at least own up to my mistake, like, well, nope, this inflation is going to last a little bit longer than, than I thought. By a little bit, I mean a year or two longer. And it, it's a bitter pill to swallow when you're an economist and you get something like that wrong. But own but, your mistakes. You're more credible if you do. Yeah, but the thing is, like we said, you've got data points now. So, like, what well, we thought energy prices was driving a lot of this. The energy prices changed. Everything yeah. else didn't change. That's a data point. Um, oh, by the way, yeah, Joey, so Joey Palat, Politano, uh, Politano. He, he writes for Apricitas, uh, A-P-R-I-C-I-T-A-S, for those watching, you know, listening. Um, and he's, his Substack is well worth uh, the free subscription, and I would say it's worth the paid subscription, too. And uh, he's now a free man to, uh, to talk a lot about this stuff. And um, if there isn't a rising star uh, below the age of 30 in, in economics that isn't named Joey, I don't know who it is. Yeah, we've already reached out to him. He's going to be coming on the show real soon. We're working that out. Um, thanks to your recommendation, by the way, let's go through some of these numbers real quick, because again, this is a stats heavy thing. So you need to explain it to us. Uh, we talked about what the chart looks like. Here's the actual numbers on it. I'm just going to go through these individually. You give me your comments on them. Mm -hmm. Um, most of this is year over year. So that kind of makes it understandable. So it's like, okay, this is the last 12 months compared to this time last year. Yep. Right. All right. Increases. This is directly from the economic news release. So this isn't spin. This isn't somebody's opinion. This is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Increases in shelter, food, and medical care indexes were the largest of many contributors to the broad-based monthly all-items increase. These increases were mostly offset by a 10.6% decline in the gasoline index. That's the energy we were talking about. The food index, now this is the one everybody's going to be talking about, continued to rise, increasing 0.8% over the month as the food at home index rose 0.7%. The energy index fell 5% over the month as the gas index declined, but the electricity and natural gas indexes increased. Those are a lot of big words and numbers. What does that say to you? What it, I mean, really what it comes down to is, one, I, so the food thing is a little bit shocking. Again, you know, I was expecting for that to be resolving itself. It tells me that our economy has not figured out how to function post-COVID. It tells me that we're still dealing with a lot of the shocks that, that we had began with the COVID economy uh, and that quite frankly, we're going to get poor inflation readings probably for the rest of the year. 
that, that's my bot. I mean, remember, I used to be pretty positive a few months ago, so I, I'm changing my tune a little bit. I'm a little bit disappointed. I don't see inflation shooting out of control or anything like that, but I think we're going to see inflation stay uncomfortably high. And the takeaway that everybody should have from that is, what is the Federal Reserve going to do? Well, um, I think the floor is a 75 basis point increase at their next meeting. That's going to raise the cost of borrowing for everybody. It's going to translate into higher mortgage prices in some respects. It's going to translate to a lot of other higher prices, um, you know, higher higher costs for, for those for those items. So, you know, they're going to, Federal Reserve is going to, you know, we were hoping that maybe they would start tapering off their, their rate increases, um, right? Because they're trying to do the soft landing. They're trying to bring a plane down uh, and land it without a whole lot of landing gear. Uh, basically, some of their, you know, that, that landing is about to get a little bit rougher. It's going to be even more difficult to pull off that soft landing. Can they still do it? Yeah, they can. Is, are there some data points in favor of them? Yes, there are. But there's there's definitely a mounting number of data points that are saying it's going to be a lot more difficult. Yeah, there was some good news in here. Airfares were good. Uh, it was a massive travel year, which everybody kind of assumed it would be coming out of COVID. Everybody wanted to get out and move. It's been a really good tourism and travel year economically for folks. So airfares were good. Communication, that one was kind of interesting. But again, coming off of COVID, everybody kind of changed communication. You figured that would do okay. Then the indicator you've been talking about ever since we started bringing you on the program, used cars and trucks declined. That was a big one because that was one that you called a pressure point kind of a thing of, listen, when the economy's bad, used cars and trucks get really expensive because people are trying to get the cheaper one because they can't afford the new one. That's your data point. That's the one you always told us to look at. Now that one actually looks good underneath all these bad numbers. What does that tell you? Well, it's starting to look better. It's still well above what we consider normal inflation for the year-over-year change. For example, right, the uh, the used cars that Andrew's mentioning, they went down by 0.4 percentage points in July, month over month, and in August they went down 0.1 percentage points, month over month, um, going leading us to a a year-over-year uh, -year change from August to August of 7.8 percentage points. That is still high. You know, it's gonna it's going to take a lot of downward movement in used cars to get you back to the baseline of where that would seem to be reasonable. You know, keep in mind, we were coming off of May and June where used car prices month over month rose 1.8 and 1.6%. Point one declines ain't going to get you that much down. Yeah. Talking to our buddy, Stephen Popick. He is an economist. He's a good friend of ours. We always love talking to him. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to keep digging into these numbers. Uh, we're going to dig into the reaction to him. There's a couple reactions out there in the news media and social media that caught his attention. One of them's got him all kinds of fired up because he's like, send me this and ask me this, which is very unusual for him. So we're going to get into that more with Stephen Papak. We're, listen, this stuff is hard, and he explains it so well that even I understand it. We're going to keep doing that right after the break. Heard tell continues. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger 
for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We got our buddy Stephen Popik with us. He's an economist. He's got all them fancy letters after his name, but he explains things really, really common sense-wise, especially things that get loud on the internet, like when the CPI report comes out, like inflation, like economics. We love having him on. Um, let's talk about the reaction here, because there was some of the narratives out of this that you just didn't care for. Um this is actually out of the Census Bureau data, but it came out about the same time as the Labor and Bureau statistics. So they were kind of pancaking two things together here. Um, I won't use the name because I don't want to call one person out because I saw four different people had this exact same take on this. But the idea was that the U.S. middle class is, quote unquote, disappearing. And they said the higher income group shared household earnings goes went 100,000 plus is what we're talking about, tripled between 67 and 2001. Middle income households decreased. And low-income households increased. Just to correct you, it's from 1967 to 2021, not 2021. 2000. Yeah, 2021. Excuse me, I'm I'm time shifted. I still think it's last year. My bad. Is the middle class decreasing, disappearing, whatever you want to call it, or is people fiddling with the numbers here and getting a narrative where there shouldn't be one? So, I mean, the numbers are right. We did have only 12 percent or so of households making. A hundred thousand or more dollars, and that's in twenty twenty one dollars. This this is this is inflation adjusted, right? Making uh, the equivalent of a hundred thousand dollars today back in nineteen sixty seven, and we see thirty six percent of those, uh, thirty six percent of households are making a hundred thousand dollars more in twenty twenty one, and we see that you know when they define low income using the same metric and putting it all twenty twenty one dollars, that the percentage for low income you know has changed a little bit. But really, the decline has been in the middle income bracket. 55% were middle income in 1967, down 39% in 2021 on households. Now, yes, that's that's technically true, but the devil's in the details. And the detail is simply this, and I put it out there to, to, to Andrew when they said this. I said, wow, they have discovered that women started to work during the 60s, 70s, and 80s because you can look at the decline in the or the the decline in the middle class that they have the, the that these folks define, and put the mirror image of women's labor force participation rising during that time. And since you're talking about household income, you're seeing the transition from a one male dominated single family uh, you know, income to a joint family. You know, two workers. You know, husband wife. You know, cohabitating couples. You know, whatever, um, working together. So congratulations to these folks. Uh, you're saying the middle class is shrinking because women started working. I'm not sure that's the right message to have in an election year. Yeah, you pulled the numbers up from Fred. Um, so 1967 is the number they want to work on. Uh, women labor force participation rate was in the low 40s in 1967, depending on which number you want to use. 
by the by 2010 it was bumping around 60 percent it dropped down a little bit during the 2000s and then in 2020 something really interesting happened in the spring of 2020 all of a sudden the women participation in the labor force dropped almost nine percentage points in a month did anything important happen in february march april of 2020 that might have precipitated that number there economist absolutely nothing happened nope nope i didn't start working from home at that point we weren't all scared about a, a pandemic going on uh schools didn't close daycares didn't no, no, nothing happened <laughs> of course we're talking about that's when covid restrictions hit everybody started staying home children had to be home uh of course that hit especially working mothers hard and multi-parent households changed quite a bit by the way that number still has not come we've talked about things that have bounced back since covid that number's not back to pre-pandemic level it's still off by about four or five percent something to kind of keep an eye on as we're looking at these other numbers okay back to the cpi for just a second because this is the number that everybody probably feels the most acutely it's it's weird for something like bureau and labor statistics to have kind of a uh, a one-liner in a press release but boy this one had a little bit of punch to it they said the food index increased 11 percent over last year and it was already way way up we're talking about um you know a massive raise already the largest 12 month increase since the period ending in may of 1979 put that in perspective folks i'm not even in utero yet that's before i was even made let alone born that's a long time people that don't remember the late 70s was not exactly economic nirvana that's a bad number and a bad comp to have on an official government release yeah well, first off, I just discovered that uh, I'm just slightly older than uh, than Andrew here, uh, because I believe I was in utero at that time. <laughs> Problem uh, for the Popic family. Uh, something like that. Um, yeah, look, like some of this, like we did sort of expect, like you can't have a war go on in the breadbasket that basically feeds Eastern Europe and almost all of North Africa and expect for that not to have implications for worldwide food markets. You know, um, and that's part of the, that, that's part of, of this issue. But, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, I think, I think we're seeing that farms are still having supply chain issues. We've had a pretty big drought out West where there's a lot of farming activity. Um, that's going to raise the price of crops over there. And spoiler, that kind of drought activity probably ain't going away anytime soon. Um, you know, that, that, that's just going to be a problem. So that's where we get a lot of our crops out there. So, yeah, um, those things together, you know, that explains part of why we've seen such high costs. And you can also think of like food costs might have been, some of this increase could be a lag because food prices had to adjust. And we know that energy prices spiked a few months ago. You got to get that food somewhere that costs energy, that costs gas. And so those those prices are obviously passed on, but you can't immediately raise prices, right? Uh, you can't you can't adjust that perfectly once once these prices of energy rise. You have to sort of do it in response to it a month later or two months. So some of that could be the fact that we saw food prices spike because we saw energy prices spike a few months ago. And so this is just things working its way through the system, contracts that could sign to to ship stuff out that were signed three months ago that are now being, you know, actually, you know, enacted, right? Because, you know, nobody, nobody says, can you ship, you know, a million tons of grain, you know, without having a contract set up, you know, nine, 90 days beforehand, right? That would be bad. 
Um, so that could be part of what we're seeing, but it is disappointing. And yeah, uh, everybody consumes food. So, you know, not everybody is, uh, you know, uh, ha needs to buy a car, but everybody's got to eat. You know, and I think I just, again, we still have to caution though, like there are about, you know, there are still very big differences in how Americans are experiencing inflation. Again, if you're a homeowner and if you're a white collar worker and you're getting to work from home a bit more than you used to, your personal inflation rate is definitely well below the national level that, that that's being reported. But if you're a working class person that has to drive, uh, has to, you know, buy food, you know, not, you know, and, and maybe you have to go to McDonald's or, or you, you, you have to just buy the prepackaged stuff at the grocery store um, and you're still, you know, putting miles on your car and things like that. Um, yeah, you're, you're, seeing, you're, you're seeing more inflation. You're seeing higher than the national average there. So let's just be mindful that, you know, there, there is a difference of experience, you know, that Americans are having. And I think that for folks that are thinking about, you know, what this means, I think you should try to think about putting yourself into the shoes of someone that is got a different job and in a different life than you because they're going to be really thinking about things differently maybe that helps us bridge a little bit of the divide if we think about it like that Last time we talked to you, uh, we were both hopeful that inflation was easing. Maybe we'd seen the worst of it. Um, what do these numbers do? Because like you said, some of these are going to be lagging indicators. Energy is always a lagging indicator. So this is really energy stuff from two, three months ago that we're seeing on this report. That food number, though, um, again, let's go back to the CPI for a second. What went up in these reports was shelter, medical care, household furnishing operations, vehicles, insurance, like those are the big ticket items in people's lives. Is there a danger that maybe we didn't see the plateau? Maybe this is going to have another bump or two up before we get done with it now? I think what I'd say to that is I don't have a bloody clue right now where this is going. I was convinced that we were getting over the hump. Um, I, I Push come to shove right now, Andrew. What I'm thinking is that We've got several more months of this thing sorting itself out. And so we'll probably continue to see some uncomfortably high prints. And we'll probably see the Federal Reserve continue to to raise their 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 federal funds rate to try to stamp out that this inflation. Um, you know, they're basically trying to lessen business activity and, and lessen demand so that that sort of reduces money in the system. And that means that, you know, prices would come down or prices would remediate. Uh, and essentially they're they're going to have i mean the the risk for the federal reserve is that they do too much and they trigger a recession caused by their own actions right and that's five out of six times when the federal reserve has tried to engineer a soft landing in the last you know recessionary crises that we've had uh they failed and they triggered a recession you um, just you just mentioned it so let me ask you real quick two terms that we're starting to hear get thrown around a lot by economists and commentators about the current situation, especially since it's volatile, like you said, at least you, at least you said you didn't have a bloody clue. Usually you shrug and say Wu-Tang. So I appreciate you giving me a little bit more of a technocratic answer there. Um, money velocity of the dollar, how much the money's moving around and cash buying power of the dollar is two things we're hearing a lot of underneath a lot of this other stuff right now. 
is that something folks should be concerned at, or is that just kind of chatter under the noise, turn the noise down on those kind of matters for us? I think if there's like primary and secondary levels of concern, that's probably a tertiary concern for everybody. You know, I mean, the, the kitchen table issues are what most folks should be, should be more concerned about. Um, you know, as you said, it was a great year to travel. Um, it's still a great year. To, it's still a great time to travel to Europe right now. We, we're seeing the euro is on par or essentially on par with the dollar. That's not normally the case. European vacations are really cheap right now for us. So, um, you know, if you have the ability to do it, you should. Now, of course, not many people do. Um, or some people don't, right? You know, significant swaths. So we should be mindful of that. That's kind of like, yay, thanks. You gave me something I can't use. You know, I I, I, um, I struggle for words given that I, I what used to be part of team trans, transitory inflation. And, you know, it seems that this is just stuck around for a while. So I think the biggest thing that we need to watch is how investors and the and the market as a whole respond to the words and actions of Chairman Powell and how they try to navigate it um, to engineer a softer landing where we don't have, what he's trying to do is get inflation to come down without a huge uptick in the unemployment rate, which really, of course, hurts people a lot more than I think inflation does, right? At least you still have a job. At least money's still coming in. But... You know, that this is the tricky part. You have to slow down the economy, but you don't want to slow it down so much that you trigger a recession. And and Powell's trying to be, you know, trying to do something that's only been successful one of the last six times. Not a good standard to base off of. Uh, real quick, we've talked the economic side. There is, of course, the political side of this. The next batch of numbers we're going to get, we're going to get the end of the fiscal year numbers right as we go to vote here. Uh, early voting is actually going to be starting here before people even really realize it here. Politically. Nobody, nobody cares about fiscal numbers. Deficit spending is here to stay. Let's just, everybody be real on that. <laughs> Are you done now? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but seriously, though, I, I take your point, but you know, the, the economy is going to be the number one issue, especially the, this cost of living stuff isn't going to be fixed by the next batch of numbers. It's just not there. Even even if you had a record change down, it would still be high politically. How much both ways now, you know, how much does the reporting affect the economy and how much is the election going to affect these economic numbers? Because the economy is going to react to the election, whichever way it goes. Right. Usually does. Yeah. I think that, though, the economy is going to basically I mean, I think, the you know, the reaction to the election. The White House isn't changing this time around. There's no election for the White House, right? It's either it's Congress. And there's not a scenario on the books where Republicans get 60 senators, right? And so we're still going to be in a land where there's a Senate, you know, I assume with the with the with the filibuster so that, you know, the normal spending routine is, is going to be continuing. There's no threat of like massive cuts of government spending. There's no threat of massive changes in government programs. Um, you know, so I, I think that that's probably going to mediate sort of any sort of e econ reaction. Most, most, most folks are pricing in right now a Republican House uh, and a Senate that's either 49 Dems, 50 Dems, or 51 Dems. You take your pick which one of those it is. But practically speaking, they're all the same thing. Now, are you daring to say that congressional gridlock is good for the economy? I have a political philosophy that's my personal belief that divided government is good government. Um, I'm, not, I'm not against it in principle, but there's some specifics I need to know before I jump into that end of the pool. You understand. 
Yeah, uh, I, yeah, yeah. I just generally think like the if you have divided government, the worst of the worst ideas can't possibly get across the desk to the president to be signed, and that if you have fully unitary government of one party, really bad ideas could get across the desk to the president to sign. Yeah. Unless you have a pandemic and then they just jam through all kinds of stuff. But we'll talk about that some other time. Uh, Stephen Popek, we love having you on. You make this stuff really understandable. Looking forward to getting you on on some other topics we're gonna, we've are gonna we been talking to you about. We'll get you back on. Uh, until then, let folks know where they can follow you under your real name now. You're still under the same handle on well, Twitter, but you've got a few other things in the fire now that you're out in the public and you're all out and famous and such. Don't forget us, the little people. Until we see you again on Hertel, let folks know where they can find you. Very, very, very tiny famous. Uh, you can find me as Moto Economist on, on Twitter, and you can look up my research on mortgage lending that's now available. Uh, you can, if you look up Stephen Popic uh, and mortgage, you'll see one of my most recent research papers that looks at whether or not there's still differences in the mortgage market uh, between minority and non-minority borrowers. And spoiler alert, we still see some. We don't learn anything, do we? The same life is a circle. We keep going around and around and around. A flat circle of that. Stephen Pavic, love having you, buddy. Talk again soon, sir. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, thanks for being with us for the Hertel podcast. Long form for those of you that are used to the daily radio show. Haven't done one of these in a while. Going to get back to them on a topic that is very important, as promised. Uh, we don't just talk culture and politics. We talk how culture and politics work. And both of those things are studies of people, uh, how they work, how they govern themselves. That all goes to mental health. And it's a hot topic for the last few years. Way back in the beginning, uh, I think the fourth or fifth show we ever did was with Dr. Catherine Gordon, Mental Health. It is still one of the top five listened to podcasts we've ever done. So long past overdue to touch back in and run back with Dr. Catherine Gordon, who I'm going to call Katie the rest of the day because I will mess up and say that name wrong. Dr. Katie, how are you, ma'am? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me back on. Uh, I, I love having you on because... You do what we always like to do. We talk about these really hard, complex things, but you do it in a plain language way. Uh, you use a lot of pop culture, which we'll get to a little bit later on. Um, but let's start here with some nomenclature. Um, I think we blow by and we use buzzwords a lot. So I want to make sure we don't do that because we have time to dig into it today. But when we're talking about mental health, uh, we just say that term, but that's a wide, all-encompassing term for a whole lot of different things, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think people mean different things by it. And I think it's usually helpful in a way people contrast it to physical health, although most of us know how interconnected those things are. When we have anxiety, it certainly affects us physically. When we're feeling depressed, we can feel physically in pain or fatigued and all of those things. So mental health generally is looking at our thoughts and emotions and well general well-being, satisfaction with life our outlook on life, how we feel about ourselves and others. And we, we hear so much about it. We hear about removing the stigma, 
where's the stigma come from? Because we know people are mean and people make fun of people, but that's not what we're really talking about with stigma, is it? Because it, it goes beyond just a teasing or a joking around or humor. When, when a mental health professional or when commentators like me are talking about we need to remove the stigma to mental health, what are they really saying there in plain language? I think that it's it's the shame that can come from oneself or from other people, the idea that mental health problems are things people just need to snap out of or that it means there's something wrong with the person for struggling. I think this has improved over time. There's still more to go, but I think there's a lot more understanding of that mental health problems are not the fault of the person who is struggling with them. I think more people get that now than in the past. One thing we talked about with the COVID-19 pandemic was this is kind of a unique thing in history where pretty much everybody on the planet had to deal with the same thing at the same time. That's really unusual. Like, and I understand there was waves and things like that, but for the most part, everybody was dealing with this at the same time. As a psychologist, as somebody that studies human behavior, I got to think that's kind of a unique event where everybody has the same stressor at the same time. That doesn't happen a lot. What have we learned from that? Because that's a heck of a control group for a scientist, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is really something that I would say, as I do therapy, often comes up in most of our sessions. We kind of talk about if someone was sick, if someone had to miss work, relatives that have been ill. So it's kind of, I've never had where most therapy sessions have one topic that's common across people. I think one of the things that we've learned from it is that people have responded really differently to it. Although I think most people have been stressed in one way or another, there are some people who, who if they have, for example, <clears throat> less flexibility at work or less support, they tend to be more isolated, they might be struggling more. And so I think even though it's one shared commonality, and in one way, I think that can make people feel less isolated and more connected, you can also see how different the impact is depending on individual circumstances. How much does isolation play into it? Because for a lot of people, um, the COVID-19 stuff that was kind of the first time a lot of them in their lives, unless they're you know much older, remember like World War II or maybe the 70s gas, they don't remember things like uh, shortages on shelf. They don't remember things like lockdowns where you're not allowed to go somewhere unless you're in like a natural disaster area. This, this is stressors that a lot of Americans especially just have never faced before. They're not used to stuff like that. What is it about a brand new stressor out of the clear blue sky? Just something as simple as like, no, you can't go to school. No, you can't go to the grocery store, things like this. How bad does that just mess people's minds up? Because it's just if just starting at the, the lower level of, well, it's a break in routine to this just makes people completely melt down because they just can't handle something that different. It's a great question. I think that people were a lot of people were feeling pretty resilient at the beginning, especially when the idea was that, okay, once we have vaccines, things are going to more or less return to normal. And I think as it's persisted, in my observation, I think it's been harder for people because they're starting to forget what does quote unquote norm, normal mean and how long is this going to go on? And so I think that's been difficult. And while some people have gone back to seeing people as much as they did before, the reality is that there are always these extra fears or, of people getting sick or things spreading or just other types of impact. And it's interesting how much that 
changes geographically depending on where you are. In North Dakota, it's there aren't in the beginning of the pandemic. There were more restrictions, capacities at restaurants. They stopped sports, things like that. And now pretty much there is none of that. So I think that all shapes people's perspective in isolation as well. But I would definitely say that the more it persists for a lot of people, it's been harder for them. Let's uh, let's go through some demographics here. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with the kids. Just on a common sense level, I'm not a scientist. I can read numbers. I can read data. Mm-hmm. But as a parent, just a common sense level, if you interrupt two years, if, I know my kids were home out of school 18 months almost just to have like 14, 15 months total that's solid. They didn't do the back and forth. There is no way you can throw that kind of disruption into childhood development and not have some kind of an after effect. How long is it going to be before we know that effect? Like scientifically, I don't think we know the full effect in the data, but you've already been seeing it. We know the numbers are through the roof of people seeking things like therapy and counseling. We've seen the behavior numbers in school. Is this something it's going to take a long time to really get our arms around what we just did? And I understand we kind of had to, so I, I, I get it. Is it going to be a long time before we get our hands around what we did to this generation of children with this uh, COVID pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's it's hard to even think about the after time as, as we still continue to go through the pandemic. But I and many mental health professionals and parents, like you said, just at a common sense level, are concerned about the impact on kids having their activities disrupted. I mean, even the ones where um, the schools have stayed pretty much open, there are just factors of teachers being absent because they're sick or faculty and staff or their friends being sick and all of that stuff. And all of that, that uncertainty is difficult for kids who really thrive on routine and having regular um, expectations with regard to school. And that's another thing that understandably people were trying to adjust school back and forth, depending on what the rates were. But even that can be really difficult on kids. And then seeing their parents stressed is difficult too. And so I I am concerned about the long-term impact this is going to have on kids. And I think that we really need to have a lot of care available for them as as they get older. What are we looking for, like going forward? Because let's um, just picking a demographic here, because, you know, kids are resil- more resilient than we give mm-hmm. them credit for in a lot of ways. We don't want to blow anything off, but they are, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, we're parents. We understand we freak out a lot more than they do, and they're fine sometimes. And sometimes it's the opposite. They freak out, and we don't understand why. So what are you looking for from these age groups, uh, adolescents moving into teens, teens moving into adults? What's some of the kind of indicators or mile markers or whatever you want to call it? You tell me the terminology here. What are we looking for that we should be maybe paying attention to, concerned about, or watching out for as these different demographic age groups start advancing and trying to, you know, even in their own minds, figure out what it is they just lived through? I think one of the things that's that I am concerned about and is is worth looking for is a general outlook on life in terms of do they have hope for the future? I think that one of the things that's been difficult through the pandemic is kind of getting hopes up that things are getting better and then there's a new wave and there's a new strain. And in addition to that, kids might have various feelings about how um, their government leadership, their school leadership are handling things. And I think that can start to make them question the world as a place that they can count on to be um, 
to be running smoothly for them to get what they need. And so I think it's important to check in with them about what what reasons they have for hope, how are they feeling connected with their friends, what do they think about in terms of their future, how has that been impacted. And so it's kind of a general worldview and, and their meaning in life and how is that being impacted by all of this and talking to them about that. Gordon, see, I said it right that time. Uh, clinical psychologist. Let's let's go with a little bit of an older group. Um, we've got all kinds of data from the Great Recession, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, that the college age young adult demographic that greatly changed their cultural perspective. That greatly changed their political. Uh, there was movement in their political views because they went through that financial crisis, right? As they were trying to enter the job market and buy homes and these sorts of things. What about the college age and young adult demographic? Uh, I'm one of those. Our our oldest uh, graduated college March of 2020. That was a great time to try to get graduated at college. Um, what about that demographic group? Because they're they're adults now. They're trying to enter the workforce. They're trying to kind of find their way in the world, and they have that during their college years, which is another one of those really important developmental times. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that one of the things that I've observed um, in interacting with college students is feeling some loss if they've if they've had college during the pandemic, where the classes aren't the way they thought they were going to be. The experiences, the social experiences, which of course is a huge part of college, are different than they had hoped. And so I think we do see higher rates of anxiety and depression and and less engagement in some of the college students that are struggling. And so I think that it's really important to recognize that, validate that those are understandable concerns, and then provide tools for managing mental health, for thinking about things, connecting, finding meaning, having friendships, finding ways to look forward and have hope. I think those tools are really important and often they need guidance with it. Yeah. And that age group, they're very online. Uh, mm-hmm. They have a lot of their relationships already online. I know I, I, I noticed with my younger children, you know, they didn't really miss a beat talking to their friends because they all talk on social media anyway, TikTok and gaming and these sorts of things. Let's talk about a demographic that does not have that. Um, we've seen the numbers uh, they call it the great resignation. Uh, older Americans, a lot of them during the pandemic said, heck with this, I'm going to the house. They retired early. Um, they're not working as much. Older people are not working the part-time jobs they used to. What about the older Americans and and their kind of situation? Because some of them are not as online. So it hits them even harder when you have the isolation effects like a pandemic, like uncertainty economically, things like this. What about them? Yeah, I, I think that for some people resigning that that could be a good thing maybe they have more time to spend with their family and more time to take up with some of their hobbies but one thing that i think is taken for granted sometimes is that we need to interact with people we need to have relationships with people it is essential to our health 
And I think that it can kind of fall on the back burner and get ignored and lead to a lot of loneliness. So it actually takes a lot of intentional effort, especially if you're not regularly going to workplace, you're not regularly interacting online. And so it's important to find those times to make phone calls, to go to places, whatever, go to church, whatever it is, and have those activities that keep us connected to one another and not kind of let it fall as an as less of a priority than physical health. Yeah. And um, on that note, what is the issue with access? I know we talk about mental health, but we seem to have, before you even get into the services of mental health, is it the bum rush of people that are having mental health crises right now? Is it all those, we know the adolescent system is just absolutely flooded right now. Why is access such a problem right now? Because that seems like it's not even a systemic issue with healthcare that we're already talking about. You, you can't get an appointment if you want one. What is going on with the access to care since you brought it up? There are only, only so many mental health professionals out there. And so when the need gets that high, it can really just exceed the ability to meet all of those needs. I think that that's especially true in areas that are more sparsely populated, where, like where I live in North Dakota, there are some rural areas where there aren't that many therapists. And when the demand is that much higher, it just makes it more difficult to get in. I think that this is part of the reason that it's so important to take preventative measures with mental health so that it's not waiting until people are in a crisis to get in. And and I think that um, that's something that some of the financial assistance, for example, especially that existed in the beginning of the pandemic, I think probably helped people's mental health early on because they had fewer stressors worrying about being able to pay for things that they need. And so that can kind of prevent it from getting to the point where many more people are in crisis and all at once trying to seek care. Yeah. Talking to Dr. Katie Gordon, um, the, the one perspective on this is that the access to care issue, um, is a professional level one. The other one is that it's a systemic one which end now I'm usually on, on policy problems like this. I'm usually an all of the above guy, like, Hey, there's probably multiple ways we need to address this. But since you are a provider, you are, uh, which is the pressing need here? Is it the system isn't set up correctly or is it, we've just got to get more providers first. Cause we can't even, we don't even know how to set up a system. If you're this shorthanded. I am an all of the above person too. I think that, I think that there are, I think that we do, we need more providers, but I also think that there need to be ways that make it easier for people to access mental health care. I mean, the, the having telehealth and video visits for therapy has been one thing that has been hugely advanced during the pandemic, more insurance coverage for video visits and phone calls, and that has helped access. So that's one example. We still need more, but that I would like to see sustained kind of permanently because that has allowed many more people to access care. Now talk about that in a practical way, because you are a provider. Uh, you're on that end of it. Um, it's a calling, but it's also a business. Let's all be adults here. Every, almost everybody, even elderly folks now, everybody's got a cell phone. So just common sense wise, you're thinking, if you got a cell phone, you should be able to get a mental health appointment pretty quickly. What's the obstacles from the business side of it and the provider side of it? We know the insurance is Byzantine and that sort of thing, but what do you see as a provider as barriers that we can maybe work at either regulatory wise or technology wise? Because it seems like everybody's got the technology now. Everybody's got a phone in their hand. 
So they should be able to get somebody on the line somewhere in the world. What's the preventatives? What's the barriers? I think, like you said, the big thing is insurance coverage. When insurance covers it, most people can make it work. Even if it's just a phone call, I think it's harder for children and probably people with certain mental health needs where it is more important that they're seen in person. It's harder to stay engaged on a phone for many children and, and for some people. And so I do meet with people in person and also do telehealth and having both of those options has been helpful depending on what the person needs. But I think that um, being able to pay for it has is, is been the main thing that has come up is being able for people to have coverage for it. That's been the big thing. As on a, from a provider standpoint, I I have had no problem. I mean, there are technical issues sometimes, but the phone almost always works. And so as long as that's covered for the patient, then then that's very workable. Is it, um, is, is, and I understand there's people like on the spectrum that have trouble with that. There's children, like you mentioned, elderly people may not even a, a simple smartphone. They may not be technologically savvy with it, but, um, especially when we start talking about, again, there's a spectrum of this like crisis care, like that initial, um, I know we've had you on the show. You've talked about suicide. You've written a book about suicide that we'll talk about later. You talk about like, man, sometimes it just takes that that five seconds to, for somebody to be able to contact somebody. It seems to me the critical care stuff of at least getting that initial, Hey, we don't have anybody right now, but can you get, can you make it two weeks? Can you do, it seems like that could be a bridge gap here of some type of, you can call somebody somewhere and get somebody on the phone line and it would make a huge practical and immediate difference to the mental health care crisis. I agree with that. I, I work in a medical setting and so often um, there are nurses who can contact and just make contact and, and they're, they're wonderful. They're empathic. They can help with problem solving. They can connect with community resources. And that way people don't feel like they're alone as they wait to get into care. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a VA patient. So I know the VA one, there's a lot of things the VA does bad. I bang on them all the time. One thing they do did good now is um, your healthcare. You have secure messaging directly to your providers through the VA website now. I cannot tell you what a huge difference that is because so often you you just can't get somebody on the phone for a 30-second question. Now I can send them a message to my different care providers and you'll at least get a response. You may not get the answer because it's still the VA, but at least you get a hold of somebody. Um, is that something that's going to be scalable to the medical community at large? I know there's privacy concerns and stuff, but we, it seems like we are not adequately using technology, especially in mental health where there's privacy concerns, but that the privacy issues with um, doing technology from your own home, from your own, that's, that's an area where a lot of people mental health-wise might actually be more comfortable than actually going in, isn't it? 
I, I think that's right. I, I think that, um, and the healthcare system that I work in now has my chart, which a lot of systems have. And so patients are able to securely directly message me, which is better than email. I think a lot of providers use email or other types of things like that. My chart is more secure and security is extremely important when it comes to mental health care and, and private information. But I agree. I think that's been a big deal because if it's, if patient wants to just ask me something or tell me one quick thing, I can directly receive that. And that helps, especially sometimes the way that people manage wait lists for therapy is to see people every other week instead of every week. And that way you can see more patients. So being able to have that message option in the meantime is, is definitely helpful. We've been talking about uh, patient mental health a lot. How's the providers holding up? Like we don't stop and talk about that, but we already have a shortage of them. Uh, we've seen, I know the frontline healthcare workers for like, you know, the ERs and things, they've gotten a lot of it. I've got to imagine the flip side of the mental health crisis is our providers have got to be uh, stressed. They've got to be having their own mental health crises with this. How's the providers holding up? Because if we lose them, then the rest of this ain't going to matter a whole lot. So how y'all doing? Are you okay? <laughs> I'm really glad you asked that. I, in talking to other mental health providers, I think that a lot of us are, I mean, many of us go to therapy ourselves to make sure that we're doing okay and that we can we can do our jobs. But it's it's also unique in that we're going through the same kind of events as our patients are during this time, and I think that can help us connect with patients. But it can also make it difficult because there's not that distance when we're talking about coping with something. There are often things that we're we're trying to cope with our own concerns about our children, about the long-term effects, about isolation. And so I think that it has been wearing and difficult. And I think that some people have reduced their caseloads or, you know, have done things like that because I will say, at least in our training, something that is really important is that we are trained very well to pay attention to our levels of of, of mental health and well-being, and to make sure that we're taking care of it so that we can provide good care. And so um, that's not always easy to do in practice. For example, if a lot of people want to get in and be seen, it's hard to say, no, I can't see you and keep our caseload manageable. So it's a struggle. I think that the, the biggest support has just been able to talk to other mental health professionals about how we're managing and check in on each other. Yeah. We're talking to Dr. Katie Gordon about mental health on her tell. I'm going to take a quick break when we come back. Uh, she has written a book on uh, suicide prevention, a workbook. When we last talked to her, it was getting ready to come out. Now it's been out. So we get to do a little bit of review how that's gone. Also going to continue to talk about the mental health care system, talk about access to care. And uh, we'll get into one of her favorite topics, using pop culture to talk about health care, good examples and media. It's been a while since we talked, so hopefully she's got some new ones for us. Uh, Dr. Katie Gordon, more with her on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We're talking to Dr. Katherine Gordon, clinical psychologist, friend of the program, uh, one of the OGs. She was one of the first episodes we ever did. Glad to finally have her back. Um, let's let's talk uh, suicide for a minute. Um, we had a very high-profile suicide in the news this past week, uh, former Miss USA. Um, on paper, uh, law degree, MBA from Wake Forest, had a TV gig, uh, was living in New York City, um, seemed to have everything, beautiful young woman, only 30 years old. And although they're still doing an investigation, the authorities feel pretty confident this was a suicide, jumped off a building. 
this is just another example, isn't it, of you just never know with somebody what's going on in their head, no matter how successful, no matter what's going on. And suicide can kind of strike people from just out of nowhere, can it? Absolutely. It is so heartbreaking. And I saw this statement by her mother who said that she, even she, even as close as they were, had just recently learned how bad her depression was, that she was struggling. What do you do? I've asked you this question before, but where do you get involved with somebody? Where's the line? Because everybody's sad. We just talk about, you know, everybody's stressed. Everybody has anxieties from COVID or work or whatever. Where do you actually start worrying about, okay, do I need to call somebody? Okay. Do I need to leave this person alone? Uh, give folks just a, a couple of practical things because you don't ever want to be overbearing and, and, and people can feel intrusive doing that, especially to a loved one or a stranger. But wh- when do you need to just kind of set aside that person's feelings and be like, okay, I need to call somebody. I need to get them seen. This person doesn't need to be left alone, that sort of thing. It's a great question. And one thing that I want to say um, first is that I think that sometimes when people weren't able to step in or stop someone from dying by suicide, they blame themselves. And so I'm going to give suggestions for what we what we can do and what we can try to do. But I also want to be clear that we can, sometimes we just don't see it. We don't know how much someone is struggling. And sometimes we can try to intervene and, and, and we aren't able to effectively do that. So if you've had that happen, um, you know, I, I, I think about this young woman's mom and her blaming herself for not seeing it. And I think it's important to recognize the limits of what we can do. That being said, we are all capable of reaching people who are open to it. And so if you see changes in in someone, if you observe changes, even if they're not saying they're depressed or they're sad, but they they just sound like they're feeling more hopeless or they feel like they're they seems like they're not enjoying life, they're withdrawing from activities and people that they used to love, then it's it's always good to open up and check in with them. I'm a a big proponent of being direct, asking, are you are you having thoughts about suicide? Are you doing okay? And the research suggests that asking directly does not plant the idea in people's head, but it can open a conversation. And the person might say, no, I'm, I'm not, but I'm struggling. Or they might say, yeah, I am, and, and talk about it. And so those are some of the big factors to look for. Some other things that you tend to see are um, that can be warning signs, although it varies depending on the person, is um, if they're having really disrupted sleep, they seem more agitated. So those are all things to look out for and worth checking in. In terms of when to push if someone doesn't want, if someone kind of doesn't want to talk about it, I I think that's a really, it's a difficult question. And one of the things that I try to think about is if I'm really worried about someone and they don't seem like they want to talk to me in particular or want me to help connect them with someone, I might think about some of their loved ones, friends or family members who I can check in with too. Do you see this too? Are there things we might do together to help this person? Um, I hate to even give you this question, but this is just the world we live in. When do you get the authorities involved? Like, when would you call a 911? When would you call? I know there's crisis lines as well, but all they can really do is talk to you. But obviously, if there's a physical threat or a weapon or somebody's on a ledge or something like that, but that that's almost an outlier. Usually it's way more subtle than that, isn't it? Well, I, I hate to just say when in doubt, call somebody and let them make the call. But that's pretty much what you're down to in these situations, isn't it? 
This is such an area of controversy because I think that uh, I don't think there are any simple answers. I will say that if someone has, you know, done something to hurt themselves or they're about to and said that, then that is when I, I personally um, would, would want to call the authorities to prevent them from being, from being harmed. I think that if there are other ways, for example, if they're, they're talking about suicide, but there's an opportunity to get them in the emergency room for, to go over there and those types of things. I mean, it's hard to say, I don't mean to be vague. It's just, there are so many different factors that go into it. Um, that, that I think there are other things to do besides call the authorities in a lot of situations. But on the other hand, sometimes that's the thing that can help if someone is imminently going to hurt themselves and, and you need help. Yeah. You've talked about when you were, we interviewed you before the book came out, um, the suicide thought workbook, have it right here. Um, I did read it. You were nice enough to send me a copy of it. Um, when you're talking about self-help, and self-care because like you know you live in a very rural part of the country up there in the the northern great plains when people are just by themselves is there an effective way to give them some kind of a self-coping tool because i I know there's no such thing as a cure-all for you know there's no tylenol for suicide prevention you know there's not one bullet but what have you found out because you've had about what a year since the book came out give or take you've got some feedback and data on it now is these tools applicable and are they working for these people that are isolated that they can get a book and at least it gets maybe their mind just shifted a lot. We talk in my therapy at PTSD all the time, but like sometimes you just got to shift your mind or physically change your mind. Is it effective? That's the feedback that I'm getting is, um, you know, that people find it helpful. Many of them are also in therapy alongside it and don't find it as, uh, as a replacement. They also, there is something about having a dialogue and conversation that can be helpful, especially when you're struggling. But there are also people who won't go to therapy or can't access it. And so being able to buy a book for $20 that they can do in the privacy of their own home and not worry about being seen, sometimes that's a better fit for them too. And so the idea was to give more options, of the maximal amount of options available. And there are, um, I have had some positive feedback about the it's a workbook. So the idea was to make it close to therapy where it's not kind of just throwing all this heavy jargon at someone and and they have to think about it and have some huge epiphany or revelation. It's very much broken down into step by step. I ask, you know, the, the workbook asks a question, they fill it in. There are some small steps to take to make things better, but the overall picture of building hope reducing pain and, and connecting. So I've been very grateful for the positive feedback I received from people that either working with their therapist or working with it on their own, that they found it to be helpful. Talk about the connection of those two, because I've heard you talk about it. You've written about it a lot. You've talked about it on other podcasts. There's a connection between hope and pain. And I, I don't know how, how direct a line that is, but people in pain lose hope and people with hope can cope with an, an extraordinary, the, the mental ability to handle pain and loss and challenges, if you can hold on to hope, is something beyond what science can, I think you'd agree with this, beyond what science can explain. What, why are those two things so intrinsically connected when it comes to mental health? Because they really seem like, not that this is a perfect seesaw, but if you were going to have one, those would be the two counterweights, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's right. And there, and most theories of suicide 
scientific theories of suicide do look at pain and hope. A lot of people, when they desire suicide, it's because they, they want to escape pain. It's not that they, they want to die. They don't want to exist. It's, it's not that it's that they're in excruciating pain and, and they want some relief from it. And hope can be a huge buffer because even if someone is in deep pain, if they feel there's any chance of it lifting and things improving in the future, they can hold on and say, okay, I'm in pain now, but I'm, it's, if it's going to improve, I can wait through this. I, I don't need to end my life. And so that's how they're related. It, it soothes some of the pain to know that it's not going to be permanently at that excruciating level. What is it um, about pain that just completely disrupts our I don't even know the right term here, so you can help me, but that, that brain body connection to use a real cliche term, but what is it about pain that just completely short circuits everything about our thought process and our emotions? One analogy that I've heard by Dr. David Klonsky, who's a psychologist who wrote the three-step theory, which I feature in the book that I thought was a really useful way to compare to pain is he talked about when you have food poisoning and you're so sick, you can't really think of doing anything else because it's all consuming how terrible you feel. Uh, and that's kind of how pain can be when it hurts that bad, that you, it's, it is physically very difficult to move your attention to other spaces or to imagine feeling better or feeling different because if we think about it from like an evolutionary perspective, we're meant to pay attention to pain. It means something's wrong. It means we need to do something to, to make it better. And so that's why I think it just becomes all encompassing until we learn tools to manage, step back and alleviate it. Let's lighten the topic up a little bit because okay. this is always really heavy talking to Dr. Catherine Gordon. Uh, I love you do this. You do this every time we talk to you, but you love to use pop culture references to talk about mental health. We're talking about some ways to self-care. Part of that is in taking media that portrays mental health in a good way. So give us a couple of the new ones. Uh, I know you've wrote about like BoJack Horseman in the past, other shows that have had good positive, some that kind of surprise folks, but what's a couple you've seen lately? Positive mental health applications in media and movies and TV shows, whatever the case may be. The show I've been big on watching lately is Cobra Kai. And um, hopefully some people are still watching it. I know it kind of, it gets, uh, well, let's just say it kind of, I think after the first couple seasons, it's just the karate. Some people tire of that, but I'm still enjoying it. I think there have been some really good mental health depictions in that show. Um, for example, Sam, who is uh, Daniel's daughter, is attacked by Tori. And at first she has flashbacks and panic attacks as a result of that. So you see some realistic depictions of someone after they've experienced trauma, um, trying to avoid reminders of it, trying, uh, having kind of a physiological startle reaction when seeing the person having flashbacks and, and that impacting her life. So I thought that was a good depiction. 
I think that Johnny as the main character, he struggles a lot with alcohol use. And I think that they managed to find a way, even though there are a lot of characteristics about him that people might not like to find likable or sympathetic and that you can see how he's kind of feels like a failure. And when he tries, he, he, and doesn't live up, then he tends to turn to alcohol again. And so I think that some of the depictions in there have been pretty good. Yeah, I, I find Hollywood to be really ridiculous in a lot of cases. And I I know we're doing streaming and it's not all Hollywood anymore, but for lack of a better term, you know, like where we have, <laughs> we have parental ratings about there's smoking in this picture. Like, what? Really? But I think alcohol and, and to a lesser extent drug use, I think that's something that I've really seen a change in my lifetime. I'm 41. Um, I, I've really seen a change in how it's portrayed in media. And there, there's just no way to another one of those things you just can't split up. You can't talk mental health without people self-medicating either with alcohol or drugs or you can even do it with your work as i've learned you can you can work yourself addictively like everything else um do you see that as well or am i accurate in that do you think that has gotten better in how it's portrayed i think so i think that it's it's less i think that there are ways that it's shown um kind of less as like a self-control issue and more of that people have a lot of stressors and one way that they might be prone to dealing with that is through substance use. And one of the things that they have done on Cobra Kai is they show a lot of backstories and show kind of when they didn't learn good mental health coping tools and some of the absence of parental figures in their life. And so I think that kind of context helps to make a more realistic picture of why someone might continue to try to escape the negative emotions they're feeling or the pain they're feeling through alcohol or substance use. Yeah. And I don't want to give away plot lines on Cobra Kai because my kids love that show. I, I needed, I needed in small doses, but um, when they took Chris back to Vietnam, I thought that was actually, I, I, I cringed when my, my kids said they were going to do it. I was like, uh Oh, here we go. I thought they actually did really well with that. I thought because you have such a just bluntly evil character and, you know, some of it was a little over the top. The military accuracy wasn't there. But as far as explaining how somebody becomes evil, and I hate to use that term, but he's the bad guy in a movie. Mm -hmm. um, I actually thought they did pretty well with that, all things considered. Well, that that's good to hear from someone with a military background, kind of that you felt that that there was some accuracy to it. Yeah, I I, I, I get the, you know, evil person puts you in an evil environment and you become evil to survive that that's a classic what's the term coping skill i guess but that's that that's just human nature 101 stuff and if you're going to tell a story like that and talk about mental health you know this is all human behavior 101 stuff and we always talk about on our show human nature is undefeated you just got to try to learn to get some wins where you can right mm -hmm. uh dr katie gordon we so appreciate talking to you uh we talked about the book a little bit so you talk about it tell us about uh the workbook you also do other media you do podcasting you do some writing we'd love to have you back at ordinary times anytime you want to write about cobra kai or anything else again you're you got an open invitation let folks know where you're at where you're writing what you're doing Sure. Well, you can, um, lately what I've been working mostly on is my podcast, which is called psychodrama podcast. And I co-host with another psychologist. We tend to talk about societal controversies, mental health, um, psychological issues. And we really try to talk about things with some care and expertise and, and look at different facets of the issue. And 
I like podcasting for that because I think that when people talk, you can kind of hear more versus, I don't know, tweet arguments or something like that. So um, that's, that's the main thing I've been working Was on. Was that a then- shot at me? You kind of looked oh, at me. No. And said, <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> Not at all. I don't. I don't see you in a ton of Twitter fights. But <laughs> no, I think that was that was praise to you for your podcast. Um, <laughs> good recovery. Good recovery. Good. Recovery. Anyway, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> tell them about your social media and your podcast. I am on Twitter at Dr. Catherine Gordon. D R K T H R Y N G O R D O N. It's the same on Instagram. And you can listen to Psychodrama Podcast on most podcast platforms. I also write, although I I have been writing less just for the sake of time. I, I do sometimes write for psychology today. But you can find links to the stuff I've written on my website, katherinehgordon.com. And you do great work, and we appreciate you, you greatly. Uh, this stuff isn't going to go away, and we're not going to stop talking about it. Um, because I... We don't want to diagnose people, but so much of what we see in culture and politics on social media and how politics is covered, I think a lot of it, if you understand how people are thinking, how people are coping, people's mental health, I think you start explaining a lot of things that the politics don't because I've learned in what I've been doing the last three or four years with, you know, politics is usually just the coat you're putting on and your cultural tribes are kind of the coat you put on. And the stuff that's underneath it is where you can really get to the story. And you probably have big, fancy scientific words for that phenomenon. But I, everything we do is about people. And if we study people, you've got to talk mental health. So you use the fancy scientific words for that. But that's where I'm at on it. Uh, I, I really, I really appreciate our conversations. And the mo- one of the most important things to me as a psychologist and having these discussions is moving away from the big fancy words and making it accessible so that people can use it in their daily lives, that it's not just restricted to psychologists. Yeah. Plus us hillbillies, we have trouble with them big words sometimes. So I appreciate that greatly. So Dr. Catherine Gordon, who can explain it to us in an academic setting and also explain it to us like we're five. We greatly appreciate you, ma'am. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me on. Uh, You will be back. I promise. So absolutely. uh, Take care. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. We are going to talk about mental health on this program, both on Herd Tell, the long form, and on the radio show, The Daily Show. Uh, It's too important not to. So much of what we do is just based on our own human behaviors, and we excuse it off with other things, but if we don't take care of our own mental health, and we don't take care of each other's mental health, and we don't care about each other's mental health, a lot of this other stuff we're talking about just isn't mattering as much. We want to gloss over things and stay busy without dealing with these underlying problems, and we're not going to do that. 
Um, our culture has major problems in it. And a lot of those problems are we're not taking care of ourselves and we're not taking care of each other. It's something we're going to work on, it's something we're going to talk about. We're going to have experts on like Dr. Katie Gordon and others. We want to give you tools to actually affect this in your own life, taking care of people around you, what to watch for, danger signs, but also positive uh, pop culture media. The reason we talk about those TV shows and movies with her is because if you have somebody that you're having trouble getting into a mental health conversation with them, you can watch a show with them and get into it sideways that way. It makes you a nice easy, lets the show do the heavy lifting, and then all you got to do is talk to the person that you care about. Kind of makes it easy. We want to do practical things on our programs. It's not just buzzwords and ethereal theory and things that somebody somewhere else needs to do something about. This is a practical matter that you need to practically apply to your life. It's important. We want to do that, and we'll continue to talk about it on Herd Tell. That'll do it for this episode of the Herd Tell podcast. Uh, the Herd Tell Daily Show every weekday uh, for about an hour uh, on the YouTube channel. If you want to watch it, all the podcasting platforms, Big Talker FM is streaming it. You can do it on their Listen Live tab on their app from the App Store. Also, their Facebook page, Big Talker FM on Facebook. You can watch it there. It's on at 6 a.m. in the mornings, 3 p.m. in the evenings. We have great content every day trying to turn down the noise of the news cycle, kind of hit some of the headlines. We talk about things that matter. We don't talk about things that don't matter, and there's just caterwauling noise. We don't spend time with that because the most precious thing you give us is your time. We want to respect it. We don't want to talk about things that don't matter. We don't want to waste your time on us being silly. So we try to respect you by doing the best we can with it. We'd sure appreciate you subscribing on whatever platform works best for you. Uh, also leave a comment and rating. We sure appreciate it. If you have something you want to convey to us, if you got a comment, an epistle, whatever it may be, you got a topic you want covered, you got a guest you think we should talk to, let us know. Show at gmail.com. You can email us at herdtellshow on the Twitter. You can direct messages that way. My Twitter handle, Four for the Fire, you can message me there. We'd love to hear from you. We've already done some topics on the shows based off of what listeners have asked us to cover. We'd love to do so again. Love to get your feedback. Um, if you would do us a real big solid, though, share us on your social media. All those platforms have a share button. Let people know where they can find Herd Tell. We'll keep doing it as long as you keep listening. So happy to have these long-form podcasts back up and going. We'll be digging into these issues. These will come out on the weekends. Monday through Friday, we'll see you here for the Herd Tell Daily Show uh, with a great guest every day and the topics of the day. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. None of this works without you. We wouldn't have anybody to talk to. You're the most important part of what we do. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll see you next time for Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Uh, welcome back to her tell. Okay, let's talk about everybody's favorite company, Amazon, for and against. It is all over the news. It is in your homes or on your porch. Hopefully nobody stole it. Porch Pirates is a different subject, though. Caden Rosenbaum, new voice, new face. Always excited to have new people on the show. Sharp guy. We're going to be talking a little Amazon with him. Caden, how are you today, sir? Thank you so much for the time. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, we've been talking about Amazon a lot. Let's start big picture for just a second. 
though, because you're going to use a specific example here. So let's start big, though, because everybody's got an opinion on Amazon because they're that dominant in the market. Everybody knows what they are. They they probably have one of the higher name recognitions of any brand and company in the world, I would think, especially at least in the Western world. As a company, because we know people, you know, they're picking at them about the labor stuff. They pick on them about the monopoly stuff. Bezos, of course, is a lightning rod because of various things, both personal and professional. And they're just a massive company. What's your take overall on Amazon? Just so we have a baseline here, because a lot of people, it's just a place to buy stuff and it gets to your house quick. But there's this whole other political side to Amazon, too, isn't there? Well, I guess I should preface with a little conflict of interest here. I've been a Prime subscriber for... I don't know how many years, and I'm a I'm a big fan, right? Um, but beyond just that, I think Amazon is a is a great service to consumers and overall, it's it's done what even Walmart couldn't have done uh, even back in the days. It brings you products from way off places for cheap prices, and it's always convenient. It's got two day shipping now. And some places like where I live, they're building a brand new distribution center out here. We're going to have even less than 48 hours. You mentioned Walmart. I think that's something important to bring up here because I'm older than you. Almost all the criticisms I hear about Amazon, they're a monopoly. They're too powerful. They're destroying small businesses. They're doing this, that, and the other. Almost word for word, the labor stuff. Although, you know, not that they don't have probably some sketchy labor practices that should be investigated. Almost word for word all the criticism in mass news media and in the commentariat that I hear about Amazon is all the stuff I heard about Walmart 20, 25, 30 years ago. It's the same story over again. It's a new narrative. Isn't part of this though, is just whoever the biggest guy on the block is or the biggest company on the block or the biggest whoever that's in our cultural notice, they're going to get most of the slings and arrows when it comes to issues like this. Yeah. I mean, it really feels like deja vu, doesn't it? Uh, I think it was back in 2004, 2005, when Walmart was the big bully on the block that was uh, was being taken on by Congress. And really, this isn't a new trend in American politics or American economics. This is this goes back even back to the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890. The big argument was that the companies would overtake the government or capture regulatory control by influencing legislators with money. That started back in 1890, went to 1914 when the Clayton Act was passed, both antitrust acts in federal Congress. And the the concerns were always the same, that companies are so dominant that they would overthrow the government, that that was was the big concern. And fast forward to today, we know that almost all of the companies that everyone was concerned about at the time no longer exist or are wildly unprofitable compared to the new dominant players. It's always a business cycle of dominant versus new versus upcoming. And it's it's easy to argue that there's wide uh, corporate control when there's a new player on the block or someone that you don't quite understand, such as big tech companies. But really, in the grand scheme of things, this is all the same as it's always been. It will always be a big company that rises and then a new player that comes in and knocks them down a few. Yeah, especially when you're dealing with somebody that's a disruptor in a sector like Walmart disrupted and they made their money. It wasn't their stores and their cheap prices. Those cheap prices came from their they did a world class way of doing logistics. That's where they they became Walmart. But then that same logistics thing is what kind of addled them the last few years when Amazon came up, because now Amazon got rid of all the overhead. They don't have to do all the logistics that Walmart does. Yeah. It, these things go in cycles. I think it's a great point to point out. 
that brings me to something that you touch on in your articles we're going to talk about. In, but we, we've talked about this in the legal realm. We talk about this in the technology realm. We talk about this in a lot of other realms. This is one of those things where legislation and regulation and the law is always chasing and they're never going to catch up. I'm always really leery. And you just mentioned it with Amazon. They want to regulate Amazon. They want to regulate Facebook is a good example of this. Well, by the time they get around to regulating Facebook, my teenagers don't use Facebook. That's two technologies ago for them. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Like we oh, tend to saying. regulate way behind. So you can say Amazon needs regulation, but by the time they actually get around to doing it, the market's already changed again. Is there any way to bridge that gap where the legislation and the regulation actually keeps up? Or are they just going to keep chasing the next big thing and be behind the curve, do you think? Well, the the prevailing trend for the last, I'd say, 40 years since about 1983 was to just focus on consumer welfare. If a company is actually being unfair or deceptive and harming consumer welfare, meaning they can obtain goods at a cheap price that are quality, uh, if if a company is harming that consumer welfare, then they ought to be looked at and face antitrust scrutiny. But if they're doing good by the consumer, if they're giving good prices for good products, then there's no reason to break them up. They, they're a good value add to consumers. Um, these days, with some shifts in the FTC, the standard has changed quite a bit. And it's no longer about consumer welfare. It's about size, power, and, and monetary dominance. And that's I mean, that's one measure of looking at it, but in the grand scheme of things, if, if we just look back uh, only a century, that's not the way that the economy works. It's always going to be cyclical. And yeah. I, I don't know about you, but just one of the things that Walmart has done to try to keep up with Amazon is grocery delivery. And that was a great move, uh, spurred on by Uber Eats and DoorDash and Instacart. And if we expect companies to grow, it's going to be because other smaller players like DoorDash, Uber Eats, and Instacart move in and show a different kind of product. And that's exactly what Amazon did to rise to power. It's exactly what Walmart did. It's it's almost just, uh, it's almost new, uh, naive to say that that's not going to happen again. Yeah. Cade Rosenbaum joins us. Put your lawyer hat on for just a second, then we're going to go through a couple of the examples you've been writing about Amazon, though. But Size and market dominance does not equal a monopoly. Now, I know on Twitter, those two things are used interchangeably, but that's not really the case, is it? Oh, no, not at all. There's uh, a countless number of antitrust factors that you should be looking at to figure out if a company is a true monopoly or not. There first has to be complete market dominance, which is market control. And the big problem there is you have to define the market. Um, the latest one that we'll be talking about later is the market for smart home devices. What does that mean? Is it just Alexa? Is it the little robot vacuums? Is it also the smart bulbs that go in your house? What is the market for smart home devices? That's the first test. You figure out what that means. And then you get to the point where you figure out who has the most dominant position and what constitutes dominance really is also up to interpretation. If you can somehow get across all of those boundaries, then you have to show that there's consumer harm because of monopoly or foreseeable consumer harm. And all of that takes years, if even decades, uh, as Microsoft saw in their case that was recently settled, started in the early 2000s and was only recently settled. Yeah, which goes back to what we were just talking about of the regulation always running behind these things. You've got to be kind of cognizant of it.
Okay, so that's the terminology of it. Let's get to a couple of the examples you were writing about. Caden Rosenbaum joining us. By the way, he's got one of the greatest Twitter header pictures I've ever seen. I'm not going to ruin it for you. Just go find it. Oh, we're linking you. to it. You see it. I love it so much, but that's one of my... My wedding wedding photographer was a fellow lawyer, and she took a great picture of me, Kathleen Burke. Yeah, um, and his header take uh, is even better. <laughs> you have two examples here. You mentioned it already, so let's start with the robot vacuum things. I was actually joking with my kids because I've got one of these things, um, and I got the little app on my phone, and it actually, I can watch on the app. The first time I turned it on, it maps the house, right? It goes around and maps mm -hmm. the house, and I was showing them. It looks almost like the old Tetris or something. I'm like, you know, when I was a kid, this was a really good video game. Now this is the vacuum cleaning my house. That's how much technology has changed. When people think about a technology change like this, it's silly. It's like, well, it's a robot vacuum, and it doesn't replace cleaning the floor. It just kind of does that first layer. I still got to clean the floor, but it is a nice convenience, and it is something that's electronic, and it is one of those things that is online, and it's an app on my phone, like, you know, because like, I'll be recording a show like this, and I forget, and I got to go turn it off real quick. I got an app on my phone. People, when something's in your house like that, it gets personal. You mentioned Alexa um, and the other home things. You know, Google's, you know, Google's got one. Apple's got one. Everybody's got one of these things now. The ring doorbells isn't part of this before we even get to the politics and the policy and the legal part of it. We are personalizing much more of this technology. It's in our home. It's a daily thing that changes how we deal with it before you even get to the rest of it, doesn't it? It could. It depends on the way you look at it. Do you want less technology in your home to personalize and make your life more convenient or do you want more? Uh, for me personally, I have more. I mean, all the lights in this room right now are smart bulbs. I've got an Alexa over there in the corner. I'm really surprised it hasn't gone off yet. Um, and and I have a iRobot upstairs to vacuum up my dog hair uh, for me. It's all very convenient for me because I don't have to spend uh, 30 minutes to an hour, you know, vacuuming or cleaning. There's a robot that I can ask questions to instead of going and Googling them myself. Uh, my life is extremely convenient and that's my choice. Uh, it's really about choice, whether you want that or whether you'd like a lifestyle where things are more analog, where you live a little more off grid. And I don't think that we're coming to a point where you have to make the choice one way or the other. I think the choice is still in the hands of the consumer. And that's great. Where it should be, because like me, I we've got four dogs. So that's basically what my, my poor little <laughs> robot does is it's just, it, I could have a fifth dog by the time that thing runs. <laughs> but that's my limit on the technology is I have that. I don't have anything voice activated. I don't have things that record in the house. That That's just my personal line. And we can, you know, people can argue that, but I don't like it. I don't like things listening to me. I don't like things recording me. We know how those things work, but that's my line. But that should be a consumer choice thing, not a regulatory thing is what we're really driving at here because somebody, they may not want a motorized vacuum. They may want everything in their house uh, voice activated. They may have, you know, sure. people with disabilities. Uh, this stuff is fantastic for them because they can voice activate things that they can't physically get. How much of our policy on things like this, when you're talking about an Amazon or you're talking about an Apple or Ring doorbells, another great one of these, how much of our policy do we have to be careful about our need to regulate everything when really a lot of this stuff should be all of the above, not picking and choosing, correct? Well, I think that that's uh, a good start to the conversation. I mean, for example, if in the market there is a vacuum that also sends out poison darts or something, right? That's that's a situation where you might want to regulate. That's or you would want to awesome. regulate. Where do I get one of you those? Know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You might want it, but the regulators and me personally would hope that you wouldn't buy it. So it might be regulated. 
Um, there's also concerns about data privacy that pop up in any kind of new technology that's meant for consumers. And I think it's fair to be really concerned about that and trying to build better frameworks to make sure that people's personal data isn't leaked through improper collection or storage practices and to make sure it's not misused by the companies themselves. Um, now, nowadays, we have multiple state laws. Uh, GDPR is also in effect, and that usually governs the big, uh, big consumer electronics companies. And so it's not as big of an issue as it might have been you know, five or six years ago. We're having less data breaches. Um, but that's also a concern that might be regulated. However, the ability to purchase a product for a lower price or the ability for two companies to merge and create better products together really isn't something that consumers should be as concerned about unless it's something like they're going to drive prices up and drive down quality. That, that, should, only, that should be the only consideration for antitrust in this, in this context. And you just mentioned it, and this is a big thing. The thing that folks got to remember, when it was Walmart, always low prices. That's because they were so big they could drive down prices. You mm -hmm. detail it with Amazon, this technology, like the robot vacuums, like Ring Doorbell. You mentioned both of these examples. It's Amazon's size and their market share and their ability to um, distribute these products and deliver these products. That's what's driving down costs on this really amazing cutting-edge new technology that everybody wants, isn't it? Yeah, it's the economies of scale. You know, if it's competing with a mom and pop shop selling, uh, let's say it's a toy store, and they're competing with the toy store who has a set list of suppliers, set list of customers in one small town, obviously Amazon has an advantage. And that that is one of the concerns of some of the recent antitrust reform efforts is the smaller shops. But you have to consider which one's better for consumers, not so much other businesses, because the end of the day it should be about lowering prices i mean we're we're headed for economic hardship or we may have hit finally the end of the worst of it but we were headed for economic hardship and things like this were extremely important uh for consumers yeah Caden rosenbaum joining we're going to take a quick break we come back we're going to continue to talk about amazon robot vacuums some other stuff amazon does like kindle something i've been a fan of for a long long time uh Caden rosenbaum joining us talking Amazon when her tell continues right after this.
Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Caden Rosenbaum joining us, another one of our great young voices contributors. He's one of them lawyer folks, but for the purposes of this uh, conversation, we're not going to hold that against him. He's been writing about Amazon a little bit. Let's talk two products. We mentioned one of them already, and we're going to get into the other one. People, if, if you're one of those people that Amazon is just the big bad in the world, I think it's fair for them to hear this part of the story. Let's take Kindle, something I absolutely love because I'm I'm an avid reader. When Kindle came out, this was one of my favorite things that ever happened was, oh, I can e-read Kindle. I remember when I was in the hospital in 2016, that was a you know, godsend. I could just e-read and couldn't have books and stuff. I've been a fan of Kindle since it came out. Kindle today is very different than when it first came out. In fact, e-publishing in general is very different than it came out. And this is an example of Amazon, frankly, because, you know, I'm a self-published writer, too. I've been down that road. This is an example of Amazon. I think some people complain about it, but from my most positively experienced for the most part, they've made it cheaper. They've made it more accessible. And somebody just sitting in their house somewhere can put something on Amazon and get it theoretically in front of millions of people. This is pretty amazing technology. And I think sometimes we don't stop and realize just what a ground shift something like Kindle and other e-readers too, but Kindle's the big one. What a difference that has made over time, do we? Yeah. No, I mean, it's incredible, really. Uh, every book behind me here, at least as many as I could, I have in PDF form because that's where I read them. Uh, personally, I use the the Remarkable tablet because I can write on it and make notes and things. But uh, Kindle has just been an incredible innovation over the, the last decade or so. Um, it started out being really, really expensive. And these days, you can get one for like 100 bucks, and you can choose whether you want ads or not to make it even cheaper. Uh, there's the Kindle Fire, there's the regular e-reader, there's all kinds of things to compete with. And as far as you know, self-published authors that can now use Amazon as a platform for publishing, it's been incredible. I mean, there's one book that I'm a really big fan of, and it's uh, Follow Me to Alaska, written by one of my former neighbors who moved out to Alaska with her husband, wrote this book and gained huge following. I think she made it to the New York Times bestseller list. And then behind me is From Harvard to Homeless by Franklin Lee. And this is his second book that he has on Amazon, uh, which is just a great story of his journey into van life and what that's been like. He's also in policy. And so he's he's a policy professional who's had to navigate van life at the same time. It's a great book. Um, for small publishers like that, Amazon is huge. You don't have to go to Penguin Publishing House to make sure that you're getting your work out there. It's not like, uh, to make a reference to Breakfast at Tiffany's, it's not like uh, The Nine Lives by Paul Varjak, where it shows promise, right? It's it's huge. You can put your book out there and let readers decide. That's really great. It is great. In, fa in fact, I still have physical Kindles, but um, I've got the app on my phone now. I just read it off my phone because I've got a big, oh, yeah. you know, and I've got the desktop app too. The other part of that is, and we've told people on the show before, you mentioned the PDFs. There is so much of classical literature, things that are out of print, things that are out of date, and also almost every academic paper, with a couple of exceptions, you can get the PDFs for free. There is so much knowledge for free that you can get through Kindle and other e-readers, too, as long as you got a PDF reader, this the same trick works. You can literally go on Kindle and just go show me all the free stuff, and it's, it's exactly. more reading than you'll ever do in your entire if three lifetimes you couldn't read it all. That's an amazing piece of technology that actually has some good practical implications. Um, you put it this way, that this was an example of Amazon continuing to improve consumer products. Talk about it this way, though, you know, a little bit of your lawyer hat again. Consumer products and improving for the consumer 
isn't just variety. It's also advancements in technology. It's also consumer choice. It's also consumers feeling like they're getting quality for the product. Amazon seems to be big enough that they can do all those things at the same time. It doesn't make them perfect, but being a big company, that really does free them up to do those sorts of things, doesn't it? Because sometimes they can be like, yeah, we can take a bath on these new authors because we know we're going to get more people onto our subscription service or whatever the case may be. Oh, exactly. And I mean, uh, just to quote a movie about Steve Jobs, how do they know what they want, consumers? How do consumers know what they want if they haven't even seen it, right? And Amazon, as well as Apple and Google and Facebook are able, or in Meta, are able to try new things, show consumers products that they may not have considered beforehand and really push them out at the scale that they need to, to make them adopted. Uh, and, and some of the things that they pushed out, consumers didn't even know they wanted, like uh, VR headsets, for example. From Meta, uh, Google's got uh, the Nest, you know, and the uh, Amazon Alexa is another product that was just something that people didn't know they wanted until they saw it, and it was great. Um, the Kindle e-reader is just another example. I think you could always pull PDFs down on your computer, but to have it in your hand, you know, just like a just like a book where you you needed a nightlight in bed. Uh, to read it as you went to sleep, that was huge. And you could carry 10 or 12 books in your backpack without the the weight of like 100 pounds of pages, right? That's huge. That's a great improvement to to technology. Yeah, and I was an online college student. I did most of my college online. Um, I was there for the changeover from they shipped you your books to everything's on ebook now. And now my two high schoolers, they have almost no school books. Everything's online. Of course, they're issued laptops and everything else. But all their books are in line. This is all within the last you know, 15 years. It's a huge groundswell. Let's talk about another one that we see. We don't think about this one as much, but um, I ring and the doorbell cameras and the smart doorbells. Amazon bought them, bought out ring in 2018. I didn't think about this. I was looking at your Twitter feed when you were tweeting about this, though. There's two times we see these a lot. One is what you did where, you know, the cat starts licking it and it becomes a cute pet photo. Yeah. We just saw it in the tragic Ann Hesh thing out in Hollywood. We saw it in uh, the police shooting video a couple of weeks ago. More and more, we're getting instant breaking news out of doorbell feeds. It's become, now we got it on the front of our house. This is a major technology shift too, not just for home security and things like that. This has become a new form of media almost too, hadn't it? Oh yeah, it's definitely a form of content creation or it's a tool for content creation at this point. I mean, I saw a video, it's one of my favorites. It's of a... Whenever the power plant exploded in Texas here recently, uh, the the night sky lit up in purple because it was chemical or it was a chemical plant, right? And this guy comes running out in his underwear uh, to his front porch and is yelling all kinds of explicitives. And I just I think it's really funny to just watch this guy standing in his underwear with his his hands on his hips. He's a classic Texas guy. Uh, reminds me of my dad almost because I'm I'm from Texas as well. Um, Ring is all kinds of, of content creation for those reasons, but it can also capture really important things like shootings or uh, locating whenever a suspect left a store. And it was definitely them. And my colleague, Leslie Corbley, you had on, on the show recently, uh, has an article about Ring and the privacy concerns that come from police requesting those records and those videos. But as a consumer tool, this is great. And it's not just about content creation. It's about home security. Because before this, if someone rang your doorbell, you'd have to look through little people or open the door, in my case, if you don't have a people. And you put yourself at risk to if the person on the other side of the door is dangerous. 
And for a lot of people, being able to go on their phone and say, yes, who are you, even if they're not even really there, is huge. And it's always recording. So if someone does try to attack them, they've got the recording, they can take it to the police and do that. If someone's at their home and they aren't home at the time, they can also call the police and say, there's someone in my home that should not be, and they're trying to get in. And then finally, for the package thieves, I think we talked about this earlier, but with package thieves and porch pirates, that's also a huge tool because it can show first that your package was stolen and Amazon will probably replace it. Or uh, B, that that's the person who stole You can identify the person who stole it, catch the plates they drive away. That's really huge. That's not just uh, a camera in a box. That's a doorbell that can protect your home, protect your family, and help you stay safe. And that's a great innovation that Amazon purchased. Before they purchased it, it was like 200 bucks to buy one. It's a little cost prohibitive. Uh, these days, the newer version, it's two years improved, is only $100. And that's not even Prime Day. That's standard price. So that's one of the benefits of Amazon acquiring a company. So they take a product that's already great, and then they lower prices, and they improve the quality. Yeah, and somebody who's had, not that my current house, but the one before that's had my home broken into, really wish I would have had something on video so we could have yeah. uh, nabbed those folks or at least maybe got some of the stuff back. Um, let, let's do this, though, to be fair, because we both like Amazon. But let's be fair. They're a big company, big companies with a lot of power and a lot of money. They need accountability because things can go sideways. What's the appropriate way to hold a company like Amazon accountable? Because I, I, I know the online Reddit gets out of control. And I know they're the big bully on the box. So everybody's going to have their protests against them because that's where all the money is. And that's where all the unions are focusing because they're not a union company and so on and so forth. The average consumer, though, even if you really, really like Amazon, things you like, you want to hold them accountable. So it continues because it's a good service. What's a, what are the some of the practical ways we really should be trying to keep Amazon uh, on the up and up with things, not just as consumers, but also as people who pay attention to politics as well. Is it in advocacy? Is it in providing for certain kind of regulation or preventing certain kind of regulation, as the case may be? Is it how we talk about it on social media, which obviously they're very sensitive to? What's a good, responsible way to try to hold these kind of big companies uh, accountable, do you think? Well, I think it all comes down to the consumer. And I, I really don't mean to make that the generic argument that I'm going to keep bringing up. But, you know, as a consumer, you might just question how much you're using Amazon. Is that your sole source of purchasing products and groceries and all of that? Or are you also using other products? Because if you are concerned about power and market dominance, then you might consider, you know, going to a grocery store instead of going to Amazon Fresh. Or you might consider... Uh, using many thing instead of uh, ring doorbells. There's, there's a ton of different options for you out there. And if you are concerned about power, then you should just go seek out another option. Tell your friends to. It's not really about a stranglehold on the market. That's, that's not the reality of it. And with that, brings a lot of power to consumers to choose something else. Uh, if they're concerned about union wages and, and or non-union wages and, and labor disputes, uh, they should raise their voice. And that did happen during the, the pandemic, which forced, I think, forced Amazon to increase wages and make all kinds of benefits available to them. Uh, Bernie Sanders was a really big advocate for this. And I, I think it had a really good effect on these companies by just calling them out over and over again. Um, this isn't a new tactic. These aren't new tactics that consumers and advocates have used uh, before. I mean, it stretches back years. But 
it's still a tool that's always available. And so whenever uh, regulators come out with a reform effort because the dominance is out of control or consumers are being harmed, I always question it because the other tools, the other mechanisms for making companies move are always are, are still available. Yeah. Caden Rosenbaum. Okay. One more thing before we let you go. Great information on Amazon though. Uh, but friends hold friends accountable. I was looking at your Twitter feed. I have a question. You tweeted on April the 27th. I just web MD'd my inability to remember acronyms is a problem. And it literally just turned up more acronyms. Caden Rosenbaum, defend your tweet. Oh yeah. Acronyms are <laughs> the bane of my existence. If I had a choice, I would force people to say what the acronym means. Uh, my wife is in digital advertising and she's always using uh, acronyms at me to explain how her day went. And I have to stop her every 30 seconds to say, I don't, I don't know what that means. Um, also, tech policy is just filled with acronyms. Um, NFT is a new one. You know, non-fungible tokens, uh, that's what people should be saying, but it doesn't sound as good as NFT. Um, yeah, really just if we could just get to a world where acronyms were not used. I might actually understand it a little better. And that would be great. Yeah, I can I can understand where your wife using acronyms could create a snafu for your house. And <laughs> as an FNG here on the new uh, Hertel program and being the new guy, we can see where this is a problem. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. Uh, listen, let me tell you something to somebody who was in the military and other things. Don't ever do government service if you don't like acronyms because that's all it is. It's its own language. You, almost. Google is a powerful tool for someone who doesn't know acronyms. Hey, I I ain't above Googling some some an editor sent me something the other day. He's like, well, do this. And I was like, sure. Right after I Google your acronym, literally what I messaged him. <laughs> I'm with you on the acronyms, my friend. Caden Rosenbaum, great information. Loved having you. We'll definitely have you back. Till folks see you on her till again, though, let them know where they can follow you, what you have going on, and how they can keep up with you until we see you again, my friend. Well, first and foremost, you can find me on libertas.org, which is L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S.org. And if you want to know my funny tweets and my struggles with acronyms, you can find me on Twitter and it's at Caden Rosenbaum. Those are the two places. That's where I'm always at. And if you need me, you can ping me there. He's a very serious tweeter, too. It was hard to find anything jokey in his Twitter feed. He's a very sharp, smart guy. Yeah, he's got a lot of good stuff on there. Make sure you follow him. You can see it on the on-screen graphic on the YouTube. Caden Rosenbaum, great job today. We will link to all the writing that we talked about with you. Make sure you read all the pieces for yourself. Good job, buddy. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon, sir. Thank you for the time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, sir. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, new face on the program. Thrilled to have him uh, deep in the heart of Texas, but he's from Louisiana. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Eugene Ralph Jr., not to be confused with Eugene Ralph Sr. That's why it's there. How are you, my friend? Glad to have you today. Very well, very well. Actually, very happy after the Cowboys lost yesterday. You know, as you know, as transplants, we always have to root for our actual home team. Good man. Uh, I'm with you. I'm always my favorite NFL teams, whoever's playing the Cowboys, so I'm with you. Let's start right there, though, because on our show, you know, we talk about turning down the noise. We talk about we're going to talk about the economy here, which is always a buzzwordy thing. And there's a lot of politics involved. Perspective is important when you talk about a complex issue. 
start with your perspective because I, I think it's important to know where our friends come from here. You're in Dallas, but you come from Louisiana. That changed your perspective on things, not just politically, but life and culture and everything else. Start there as a way of introducing yourself to the folks listening. Your perspective is very much shaped by that, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's definitely, first of all, when you're talking about food, I mean, it's hard to compare any place. You know, whenever I'm going anywhere, I'm always comparing it back home and it never, never really measures up. But, you know, in the whole culture as a whole, I mean, Louisiana is, is a very unique part of the South. Uh, and of course, there's even differences within Louisiana, but comparing it, you know, between here and Texas, uh, you know, you start to learn that there's a really a, a defined kind of way that Texans really kind of move and live their lives that really it contrasts with Louisiana. Even in the South, it's a little bit faster. You know, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit bigger scale. As they say, everything's bigger in Texas, but unfortunately that includes things like corruption. So whenever we're talking about, you know, economic issues, that definitely comes into play in a state like Texas. Yeah, I can confirm. I spent a couple months in Alexandria, Louisiana, and there are some very, we'll call them special people in Sun Law. Um, <laughs> very unique culture down there, even apart from New Orleans and upstate and the other parts of Louisiana. Fine folks, though. Talk about that right there, because I, I think something we don't talk enough about when it comes to the economy, how much the government bureaucracy, how much corruption is an overriding term, but bureaucracy and corruption go hand in hand. The growth of government and the economy, and then we're going to talk about the recession and we're going to talk about things like that. There's no way to untangle all that, is it? Because government grows, bigger the government, the more corruption, the more waste, the more fraud, the more abuse. That does affect our economy. It has real world implications. It's not just a buzzword on Twitter that we throw around. Absolutely. And see, actually, this is one of the, the main things I like to bring up whenever we're talking about economy, especially as it relates to government regulations. See, the issue is that whenever you introduce the government into an economy, you know, through whatever kind of forces it wants to basically put in, be it through the monetary system, be it through, you know, uh, regulations of an industry, it, the distortion that it has from that point going forward, it's basically impossible to ever disentangle, you know, the government from what is private sector uh, actors actually acting rationally, you know, so that we can never actually just look at an economy with government acting and say, you know, what what is really uh, the free market's will here? You know, because there's just there's a, it's impossible to say where the free market decisions start and where the considerations of government completely stop, because most of the stuff is completely unconscious. It's unconscious. And the other problem is, is because we have representative government, we don't pay attention to the economy except at Christmas. And when gas mm -hmm. prices spike now, COVID was an exception because we had, you know, shortages and shutdowns and things like that. So that was a little bit different. And people kind of got a little bit of an education on regulations and supply chains and things like that. But outside of that, the truth is the American people just doesn't pay attention to the economy unless it's hurting them particularly stressful. And that part of the problem here, too. Yeah, I mean, definitely whenever we're talking about recessions, I say a lot that recessions for the average person is just synonymous with bad times. And that's what they really what they mean whenever they start noticing that, you know, prices are going up, that it's getting harder to pay their bills, uh, you know, that their wages aren't seeming to catch up with, uh, you know, and their their portfolios start starting to seem to drop. This is what recession means to most people. So, I mean, it is true that a lot of people aren't paying attention to it. And of course, I don't really actually have any negative feelings for these people. I would say that the preferable situation is one where people don't have to pay attention to these things. 
I think it's generally unconscionable that everybody has to essentially be an expert on market forces in order to make sure that they can keep their heads above water these days. Yeah, and it's too complicated a term talking to Eugene Ralph Jr. The problem with the economy is it's a math-based thing. It's very, very complicated. There's different disciplines inside of economics. It's too big for even the people that do it full time. They have specialties in it. They don't cover the entire economy. So for the average person, they got no chance of understanding all this stuff. What's a better way for us to kind of address these things? Like, you know, you say recession, everybody just goes, ooh, bad, scary word. Things are going to get ugly. Or they hear things like, you know, housing downturns, which it looks like we might be heading towards. Or they see things like gas prices. What's a better way for us to discuss them that avoids that kind of buzzword stuff where it just kind of goes over everybody's head or the math where it just rolls my eyes because I'm not good at math. I'll admit it. I don't like math. It doesn't like me. We just we've learned to live with each other. What's a better way to talk about it, though, because there's got to be a gap between that before you jump to the politics side of, hey, this is a nuts and bolts thing. We all have to buy stuff. We live in an economy. We work together. We got to be able to discuss this somehow. Yeah, absolutely. I think that really is those kind of particular things that affect you specifically that really makes it real for a lot of people. So, of course, whenever you talk about the housing market, it can be a little scary. You know, the houses of some people have billion dollar companies that they manage it, but most people, their biggest investment is their house. So it can be a little bit uh, frightening whenever they start talking about housing values going down. Uh, but I think that this is actually one of the good ways to actually kind of get into the topic of the discussion of saying, you know, how is it that what the government is doing is affecting you? It's things that people can actually look at, they can feel, they can touch it. You know, they know generally how these things operate. So there are some things that are always going to be a little bit high level. Like if I'm trying to explain to you uh, how the prices uh, of, a, of an avocado tariff <laughs> is affecting, you know, the deliveries of the whole produce market, then that's, that, that's going to be a little bit difficult. But especially in a situation like now, everybody can understand that, you know, oil prices skyrocketing is going to mean that everything becomes more expensive because everything requires energy. Yeah. And you wrote about this when your piece in the Daily Bell, we're going to work off. We're going to link to it. Y'all need to go read the entire thing. It's also got some good information linked inside of it. You decided to make a lot of friends and write a piece entitled A Recession is Necessary. And then you tagged it, though, unwelcome to cover yourself a little bit. Start right there, though, because let's folks may not fully understand the economy is like everything else. It's got a rhythm and flow to it. There's a circadian rhythm to it. It can't stay up all the time. It can't be down all the time. It has to have some movement to it, but we also understand politically it's musical chairs where the people that are in charge, they don't want that down period to be when they're in charge, right? This is the core conflict here of we need to have downturn periods, but then we start tinkering with the economy to try to pick and choose where that is, and that's where we start getting into making bad situations worse. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we see this happening pretty regularly in American history. Uh, of course, everybody remembers the Great Depression, and uh, a few Austrian economists will be happy to remind people that the Great Depression was only so great because the government refused to actually let the economy be depressed for very long. Uh, the Great Depression, you know, just like most recessions, uh, would have actually cleared up fairly regularly, but the uh, recovery took years, not because of the war effort, but primarily because the government had decided that it was essentially going to take contr complete control of the economy in order to make sure that they could take credit for the recovery. The same thing happens all the time in the recessions, but whatever we're having, what, what it re really is a recession in economic terms, of course, for the regular person, like I said, it just means bad times. Uh, really, if you're talking about the whole economy, uh, there's a perfect example that happens that comes up a lot if you talk about, say, a, a home builder, right? 
And there's credit in the economy that makes him think that there's, say, 20%, 40% uh, more materials available to build homes than there actually are in the economy, right? Because the signals, the pricing signals are completely messed up because nobody's actually buying on their own investment or on the, uh, the near investment of, of somebody that's taking a personal interest in the company. But that there's a lot of credit floating around, there's a lot of fiat being floated around such that the prices don't necessarily reflect the actual scarcity in the market. So the years down the road, a home builder finds out that, oh, okay, I don't actually have uh, nearly half of the materials that I need to complete these projects but still many of them are not actually finished. There's only a portion of the homes built. And so he essentially loses his shirt because he can't actually cover uh, all the expenses whenever the bill comes due to say that we actually need to correct the price signals. Yeah, it's funny because like a couple months ago, I actually was pricing a fence for the backyard. I got four dogs and a bunch of teenagers. We need some fencing around here. Um, they wouldn't even quote me a wood fence. Mm. And they're like, they're like, it's too expensive. It'll take too long to get it. So we just stopped quoting it. We haven't quoted wood in over a year now. And it'll probably be two years before we quote wood again. So I'm sitting there trying to figure out people building houses. I forget the number, but it's something like there's 26 different trades to go into house building. And that's why housing is such an economic indicator. Just run with that example for a second of these streams of the economic thought. We pick and choose one of them out. We'll pick out you know, the labor market. We'll pick out the unemployment rate. We'll pick out housing. Something like house building and house selling, you get the loan portion of it, the finance portion, you get the material portion of it, you get the labor portion of it. That's where all these economic streams cross. And that's why those are such economic indicators, because something like just building one house involves so many people in so many different parts of the economy. Those are really the things we need to be paying close attention to, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I'm really glad that you bring that up. A lot of people... Uh, we all understand that you know houses they go up right and a lot of times we kind of see the development happening you know somewhere in the distance we notice that the land is being cleared one day and then the next day uh there's 500 brand new shiny homes uh but yeah i mean there's a lot of trades that go into it uh so it is a very good indicator of a lot of how a lot of labor is actually being affected and also a lot of producer prices uh, on materials so uh, it is the kind of thing that people should pay attention to. Of course, people already do. So I don't need to tell people that you need to start paying attention to the housing market. Of course, our 401k pays attention to the housing market. And of course, the Federal Reserve pays attention to the housing market, though we wish they might stop a little bit. Yeah, especially with interest rates going up, people are going to pay very close attention, especially if they don't have a locked-in interest rate. Um, Eugene Ralph Jr. joining us. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to dig into this piece that he wrote a little bit more. Why a recession is necessary. Why we have trouble talking about grown folk things like, hey, sometimes you got to have bad times to get to the good times. He's also got a couple really good one-liners in here we're going to talk about. He uses the term ratchet in a sentence that I just absolutely love as a writer. We'll point that out to him. From Texas, Eugene Ralph Jr. joining us. Her tale continues. Enjoy. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Having a good time visiting with our friend Eugene Ralph Jr. joining us from Dallas, Texas, uh, talking a little economy. 
All right. So you you're a Band-Aid off kind of guy. You just went there. You said, look, a recession is necessary. Why do we have trouble with grown folk conversations like this? Because I know nobody wants to have hard times. Nobody wants to have an economic. Nobody wants to see anybody else suffering either. And we understand the lower the classes, the more they suffer in a recession. But these things economically, we know, you know, good times don't last. You're going to have down periods. Why do we have such a hard time just culturally discussing something that, like we talked about, economics is a math problem. It's a mathematical certainty. These things are going to happen from time to time, but we can't seem to discuss it like grown folk, can we? Well, no, but I mean, it's like you say, nobody actually wants to go through the process of pain. I'm not saying that anybody should necessarily be looking forward to a recession. My hope is just that people can prepare as much as they possibly can, which again, it's becoming increasingly difficult because of the way that the government has been meddling in the economy. But it makes it even more important for people like us who are really paying attention to these things and are actually willing to be honest with people to say that, hey, you know, things are going to get tough. Uh, but just like whenever you break a bone, the doctor actually has to set it. Uh, the longer that you wait, the more damage you're going to cause. Yeah. And you took on the debate about whether we are or are not in a recession. You know, in one matter, in one way, it really matters in another way, it really doesn't. But you talked about that part of the debate. The metrics aren't exactly really good metrics to work off of. You talk about things like GDP. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about economic yield. We talked about housing a minute ago. When you sit down to look at these things of whether the economy is doing right or right, everybody's confused because we have a labor shortage and we have low unemployment. That's just blowing everybody's mind, right? When you're looking at this, What's the indicators you're looking at to really see, are we in a healthy place? Are we not in a healthy place? Are we backing off from the cliff? Are we doing the wily e. Coyote where we're already over the cliff and need to step back before we drop? Yeah, well, we've been running further and further away from the edge of the cliff for a very long time. So really, whenever we're saying what kind of indicators are we looking for, I think I actually did talk about in the article that when it comes to GDP, uh, it can basically never really tell you whether or not the economy is doing well but it can tell you whether or not the economy is doing poorly because it's always going to be, uh, it's always going to be influenced uh, in the positive direction by government spending. So government contributes to GDP. If GDP is negative, then that means that even with all the government spending, the economy is actually not very good right now. It kind of gives you an idea like that. Uh, but you know, beyond that, I really do basically go on the idea that is the average American thinking that things are getting harder? Um, you know, as far as economics go, uh, I might be a little bit uh, perverse in the sense that I don't really believe that we should be looking towards a particular indicator uh, on paper to say, is the economy good or is it not? My only concern is whether or not average people are actually having uh, a good or bad time about the economy. Do we need a better definition than just good or bad? Because we have a big pluralistic society. We can have whole sectors of the economy doing great during a depression. We saw that historically. You know, we had the, the Great Recession, they called it, in the late 2000s. There were sectors of the economy that did gangbuster business, even though the housing market collapsed. Do we need better terminology here of good and not good? Because we have such a diverse, large economy, you know, not everybody's hurting. Not everybody's doing well. Do we need a better way of kind of divvying that up when we discuss it? for the masses, for lack of a better term to put it. Mm -hmm. I definitely see why that would come up, especially, you know, we have the same sort of discussion whenever people talk about GDP because certain industries can contribute pretty significantly. So, you know, say everybody talks about that, uh, you know, Wall Street is going gangbusters, even as Main Street is clearing out and we're losing manufacturing. 
So definitely there are certain sectors that might actually do very well, uh, even if the economy overall is doing poorly. But I think at the, on, at the end of the day, if we're talking to, you know, the average person, you know, we, we can't really spend a whole lot of time uh, explaining to everybody, every single economic indicator. Uh, I really do think that there's, there's, there's uncanny usefulness in actually just finding out what the sentiments are of the average person in the, in the country. Now, this brings it to the political part, though, and you touched on it in the piece. Policymakers, this is you, I'm quoting you, have a brief period to disseminate realistic forecasts for the economy. Now, they're not going to do that. No. Because part of the part of the gig when you're, let's just say the president, and, and the president gets too much blame and too much credit for the economy. It's just whoever's in the seat. That's the deal. But the president and Congress and the national leaders, they play musical chairs with this. And I don't blame them. I'd probably do the same thing. They just want to try to keep it good if it's good. If it's bad, they just want to blame the last guy or the guy coming next to try to keep blame. It's always going to be that way. But like we said, there's a nuts and bolts part to this economy stuff. I think they have an obligation to be more realistic with the information they're giving. I'll give you a good example. Biden with the gas prices. You know, the comm shop for the White House was terrible on the gas prices stuff because it's like, well, if you're not going to take part of the blame when they came up, you're not going to get the credit when it goes back down. You know, you didn't have to come out and say, well, it's all my fault. That's not going to happen. But wouldn't it have been better just have some realism like, yeah, gas prices are high. There's not a lot we can do about it right now, but hang in there. They're going to come down eventually, blah, 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 wordy, wordy, wordy. That would have sounded better. And then when they come down, you get a little bit of the credit for it. Not, well, it's all Vladimir Putin's fault. And like, oh, this is all my gain now that it's dropped. I think a little realism would go a long, long way here, don't you? Right. Okay. So, yeah, so definitely part of the difficulty you would want the government to be very honest about the kind of things that they're seeing. And that's, I guess you would say that that part in my piece was a little bit of, of hopefulness that the government might have a little bit of honesty with the people, even though it's not really characteristic. Uh, but of course, it, in a lot of ways, they really can't, right? Um, it, it would undermine their confidence too much. Uh, if they were really honest with people, they would reveal how much uh, of these problems are of their own causing. And so you really can't get beyond that. Uh, if the government is going to, in some way, actually be a little bit more straightforward, it would at least just say, you know, things are actually going to be a little bit more difficult, even if they're not going to precisely say that, you know, it's our fault. They <laughs> really admit that. Uh, but they could at least come out and say, hey, you know, these are kind of particular things that we expect to see, you know, in the coming months. We expect to see food prices going up. Uh, we expect to see gas prices coming down slightly. Uh, you know, but this is just a little bit of a the elastic band coming back, um, you know, but I, I don't necessarily expect it of them now. Yeah, but if we're going to be blunt about it, we have to have recessions, whether we like them or not. It's the role of government to prepare for crisis before the crisis. We've already learned with COVID that the reaction to a crisis that we're not prepared for usually gets really ugly and people get hurt even worse than they probably should have been. This this is a foundational role of government is to prepare for crisis. And when they don't do it, this is something us, the people, need to pay attention to and try to hold them accountable for and at least make some noise about, shouldn't it be? Well, we, if we accept the frame that the government is capable of actually re responding to a crisis in, in a constructive way, then yes. But it's generally my frame that the government can basically do nothing right except for break things. <laughs> so we do actually have this issue come up where we actually try to say, Okay, well, what is it that the government can do here? And it's the same way whenever I was talking about the economy earlier. It's impossible to know exactly where a free market uh, consideration of, of exactly, you know, what are what are my economic circumstances and actually just making a business decision. 
where does that stop? Where does the consideration of government regulations on the particular matter begin? It's impossible to disentangle it. And in the same way, whenever the government starts to say, we're going to respond to a particular crisis in the economy, it necessarily does that by shutting out other actors who would be more nimble, who would be better suited to actually bring relief to people uh, either in their own communities or just in their own particular uh, field of focus. So we really, if we're trying to talk about what can the government do to make this better, the first thing that they can do is just stop and say, hey, um, I think that everybody else, you probably have better ideas. Uh, that $4 trillion that we stole from you this year, we're actually going to give it back to you and let you figure this out. And on that optimistic note, uh, no, we've we've been beating up on the government a little bit. Let's Let's circle back to the beginning of this for a bit of an optimistic note, though. It does look like there's some decent signs that the economy might at least be leveling off and and might get a little bit better in the coming days. What are some of those indicators like we talked about before? What are you watching for that? I know inflation's kind of at least leveled off for the moment. Gas prices are coming back down a little bit, although they're still high comparatively. What's a couple of the things you're watching for to be like, okay, here's some light in the tunnel that we can actually look at and it's not just a train coming at us? Well, I do want to say I don't want to consider it a light in the tunnel just yet. I will say at the very least, the the rate of our decline has slowed significantly, right? So of course, whenever things were really first getting going, when when the money printer was was going at full bore, uh, and when basically all of energy production had had ground to a halt for a moment, uh, things were looking pretty dire in the very near term. And now it just looks like they're going to be very uncomfortable for a while. Uh, as far as what are the kind of indicators that we could see that would be overall improving. Um, I think it's very difficult to actually see that the economy is going to be in a good place in the near term uh, without us actually going through something at least about as bad as we've experienced uh, pretty pretty soon, really. Um, at the end of the day, everybody understands that labor markets are not very good in the United States. Uh, we're having some issues actually keeping up employment. Uh, employment participation rate is dropping is pretty low. It's unfortunately low. Um, so as far as actual, what we're looking towards, what is, what is the actual health of an economy? It's capital accumulation. Uh, it's production. And we're just not seeing very much of that right now. This is yeah. the biggest problem, right, is that people actually being able to save, the people's savings rate is is extremely low. It's almost zero in the United States. So until we actually start seeing that being able to improve, then we don't really we're not really in the place that we should be expecting it to to turn around at that point. Yeah, and the personal savings when you combine it with the level of personal debt is a very bleak picture. We'll have to get into that some other time. That old, you know, if you needed $500 today, could you get it? That old metric. Another topic for another day, my friend. Eugene Ralph Jr. joining us. Uh, okay, we've been holding the government accountable. We've been pretty rough on them. Friends hold friends accountable. We got to talk about your Twitter feed right quick. <laughs> you tweeted, and I quote, if King Charles's only contribution is turning public and political opinion against aggressive modern architecture in his reign will have been a smashing success. Eugene Ralph, I defend your tweet, which I, I agree with, by the way. This. Look, I, I hate <laughs> modern architecture. There's a popular meme that goes around that shows a, a recent or more recently built house. I think it was in the 1970s, very much of the, the kind of modern architectural sense of the time. And it's absolutely disgusting. It's the most horrible thing that you've ever seen. And then we have another picture of a house built in the 1500s. And of course, 
nobody back then who's building these vernacular homes was you know classically trained in an academy for architecture right i think that architecture and art generally uh the kind of things that are being produced in society says a lot about its desire to actually survive and right now we just don't have a lot of things that are being built in the public space that really uh encourage people to to look towards higher things and to really ex succeed on a human scale it's it's towering it's towers of glass and steel uh that all look like they are, are essentially meant to oppress you <laughs> is the way that i look at it so i would say that if the if king charles since he does have this kind of interest in a, a more classical architectural style if he kind of reinvigorates that uh, first in the United Kingdom and then hopefully in the United States as well, then I would begin to hail him as the king of ages. I am actually okay with the uh, towers of glass and steel. Um, my own personal architecture is I loathe with a passion strip malls. Oh, yeah. I am absolutely, I, I can't sit. We had our urbanist friend on talking about him the other day and he agreed with me. I, I can't stand strip malls. They're driving me crazy. And every time I turn around, they're building another freaking strip mall. And it's all it is, is is the same companies every time they move a new strip mall they just switch to the new one leave the old one vacant and then you got a mess on your hand so okay i'll go with you on that one my friend we're okay on the agriculture but yeah if we could get rid of it if i could have my one dictatorial thing we'd get rid of this and the urbanists can give a, a much better view on this than i do i don't really specialize in the area at all but yes uh, strip malls are, are they're they're a measure of, of how bad <laughs> our whole development is overall yeah, strip malls are why we're failing as a country. I'm convinced of it. Uh, Eugene Jr., uh, great chatting, my friend. We'll definitely have you back. Till folks see you back on Herdtel again, let them know where they can follow you, what you have going on, how they can keep up with you until we talk to you again. Absolutely. I'll be writing many more pieces. So, of course, we're working uh, on, on all things related to the economy. You'll see that kind of stuff coming out. But you can follow me on twitter and that's e ralph jr so eugene ralph jr but with the initials at the front and back we appreciate your time great talking to you we'll definitely have you back soon we're going to link to his young voices page and his twitter which you can see on the screen there if you're watching on the youtube or the facebook feeds eugene ralph jr great job great chatting with you my friend we will talk again soon absolutely thank you thank you sir Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, this is going to be a little bit complicated, but this is a very important topic we need to work for. We need to work through because it gets to something that a lot of people want to see done, but it's a buzzword and there's a lot of technicalities to do it. I'm going to talk a little bit about marijuana, about cannabis, about THC, about regulation and a thing called Delta 8 and the difference between Delta 8 and Delta 9. Jessica Dobrinsky is joining us and she's going to explain it to us. Uh, she's with the Cardinal Institute out of West Virginia. She's based out of Pittsburgh, but for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against her. Jessica, how are you today? Good, how are you? Fantastic. This is going to get a little technical to start with, but we have to get a baseline of what we're talking about because the overarching debate in America is legalize, don't legalize, decriminalize, criminalize. The problem is once you get past that sloganeering, there's a lot of really in-depth technical stuff to how this stuff works, isn't it? Because even something that's legal, like THC, and as you're highlighting here, 
even law enforcement don't seem to have real good boundaries on what they are supposed to be and not supposed to be doing, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, where do we start with this? Because we've seen the news breaking out of California now. We've got data from a couple of years of quote unquote legalization. That's not going well. We know the war on drugs is not going well. Where do we even start with this? Because if we can't legalize it correctly and we can't decriminalize it correctly and we can't keep it criminal correctly, I don't even know where to start here. Do you have a better idea? Yeah, I think that a great place to start is looking back at the 2018 Farm Bill. Um, THC and CBD products were categorized as agricultural commodities. And this allowed different businesses and entities to go ahead and start creating these products. However, it never explicitly said things like Delta 8 or Delta 9, and therefore have created a lot of different legal uh, issues. Is it a legislative problem? Is it a legalese problem? Is it a lobbying problem? Why was this not more specifically fleshed out, whether it's a local law, a state law, whatever the case may be? Is it just la lazy legislating? Was it oversight? Because this is kind of a big deal. When, uh, we all remember the story last year, the truck driver that was hauling hemp, they wrecked that dude's entire life for a couple of months until they finally got it cleaned up. And it turned out he didn't do anything wrong. The police were wrong. If even the law enforcement, and, and I don't want to say they're all being malfeasant here. They're, some of them's probably honestly trying. If it's this complicated, is it the legislative problem? Is it law enforcement? Where's this problem coming from that they can't get specific about this sort of thing? Yeah, I think kind of all of those can be true in different ways. I think that one important thing about the 2018 Farm Bill is that it allowed for these agricultural commodities, but it never explicitly said that things like Delta 8 and Delta 9 um, were permitted to be to be sold and things like that. However, from kind of the way that agricultural commodities are written, you can kind of infer that those are grouped under that. However, with that vague uh, language states probably need to go in and clean it up just you know based on how how they view that interpretation and therefore provide actual guidance to law enforcement on if they should handle the issue um, and, and what their role is what's the difference because we we hear the term delta 8 delta 9 what's the big deal because one of them is completely legal and the other one gets you in trouble and when police are just going off well it smells like one thing that's not much of a standard but Start with the nomenclature so everybody's on the same page here. What is the actual difference between Delta 8 and Delta 9 and THC? Yeah, so as far as Delta 8 and Delta 9 is concerned, some states allow for both and others allow for Delta 8, but not Delta 9. And the differences um, there are the reactions that are caused by each. Um, Delta 8, from what I understand, is a little bit more mild um, in its contents, whereas Delta 9 has a stronger component of THC in it. Now, the other part of this is because smoke shops, um, there's still a lot of laws on the books about drug paraphernalia. And again, here's another term that needs to probably be defined a lot better than it is. You touched on this. Part of the problem here is legal smoke shops are selling THC. They're selling um, cannabis adjacent products that are legal or are being legalized, depending on the local laws. But they have other products. They'll have, you know, glass pipes, whatever the case may be. Part of what we're dealing with here is law enforcement has been trained for generations of where there's one, there's the other, right? So if there's drug paraphernalia, there's going to be drugs. Is this also a training problem? Is it a, a culture within law enforcement of trying to kind of de-learn what they've always been? Because you wrote about this. 
they're going in these shops and these shops have to remove this stuff. It's thousands of dollars of inventory. These are, this is probably make or break for a retail store for something like this to happen. Is that part of the story here too? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think necessarily the full blame is on law enforcement in this issue of drug paraphernalia. Um, I think there is definitely an old school way of thought, but at the same time, a lot of states have these outdated laws on the books. And just by simply having a glass pipe, which can be used for multiple things, tobacco uh, being one of them, it, you know, it, it puts a lot of businesses in weird positions and creates kind of enemies out of law enforcement that shouldn't exist. Let's talk about some of those laws because they've tried to clean some of this up. You highlighted the 2018 uh, Farm Bill legalized, quote unquote, agricultural commodities. What that was meaning was things like hemp, like CBD, like THC that was Delta 8, not the Delta 9 that we already got into the sticky wicket of that. But even in that bill, they didn't include the name of the cannabis based projects, such as the Delta 9, that should be illegal. So, again, even when they're trying to fix it, they're not really clearly differentiating here. Yeah, exactly. And one interesting thing, too, is that the Ninth Circuit back in May actually had a ruling on this exact issue. And they said that it was allowed to be sold, but they were allowed to exist, but they never really spoke to the uh, fact of interstate commerce. So, again, it's still, despite going to the courts, is having some gray areas. And again, not to beat up on law enforcement, because this isn't all their fault. But what happens is, is when they don't have specific guidance like that, they're always going to lean towards the crackdown side of the house, right? That's just their right. natural inclination on this. But now you're talk you're not talking about, you know, illicit criminals or back alleys. You're talking about small business owners. We've all seen the smoke shop and the vape shop and the strip mall, right? That's who's getting cracked down on here. That's commerce, that's jobs, that's economic stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what is the economy for this stuff? Cause I don't think people realize how big this is. You touched on it. The CD, the CBD market. See, I even have trouble saying it. The CBD market sales are projected to be up to around 16 billion by 2026. That would be in line with what the e-cigarette industry is doing. Um, small business owners, you highlighted, I'm reading this from your piece. Small business owners in North Carolina saw the store welcome its largest revenues from year to year sales of Delta eight products ever. You just talked about the Ninth Circuit ruling in May. Where's this going? Is it going to continue to work its way through the courts? Um, do these shop owners have some legal recourse to try to fight this in court? What's going to be the future of this over the next coming years, you think? I think the deciding factor on where these nuances will be cleared up is actually going to be in state departments of agriculture. Um, they oversee a lot of this stuff and they hand down a lot of instructions to law enforcement. And by allowing them to have a little bit more control and ownership on these commodities will absolutely clear up some some loose ends. Now, how is this overlapping with legalization efforts? So places like California, where they have some legalization, not as much as what prob people probably think it is, but it's highly regulated. You know, we've seen the headlines now. It, it's a mess. It's creating black markets. It's it's not it's not going well. Let's just leave it at that. What kind of overlap does that go into trying to regulate the rest of the country where this stuff isn't legal? Because this just adds to the chaos, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, it's going to depend on each state. But I think one thing that legislatures should keep in mind is harm reduction and that harm reduction must first and foremost accept that drugs will never be completely gone. They will always exist no matter how much we want them to go away. And in order to kind of mitigate some of those harder drugs and 
and, you know, getting people off the things that can actually kill them. Marijuana is a really great way to do that. And so I think once people start to come away from this old school of thought and really consider that, I think it'll be far more popular than we realize. What what would be the catalyst to really start changing this in legislators? Um, is it going to be an event? Is it going to be some kind of data study? What do you think would change the current environment? Because it seems like it's just kind of inertia of not going anywhere right now. Yeah, I think it's hard to say because, as you mentioned, all of the data is really there. And we've been learning from doctors for quite some time now that this is really beneficial to a large group of people, everything from anxiety to more severe things like bipolar disorder. And again, we've seen studies that it helps people who are dealing with uh, severe illnesses like cancer as well. So honestly, I think Delta 8 and Delta 9 really are kind of the gateway to more acceptance in the public. And I think that's why these laws are so crucial to clear up. Yeah. Jessica Dabrinsky joining us on her tell. Going to take a quick break. We come back. We're going to continue to talk about her piece. It's in counterpunch.org. We're going to link to it. A lot of links inside of that piece that you need to read through all of them as well. Going to talk about what people actually use this for. It's not just a list of drug use, mental health needs, health needs, and how the regulation and the laws need to adapt for those purposes as well. Jessica Dabrinsky joining us on her tell as we continue right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Our friend Jessica Dobrinsky, Young Voices contributor. She's with the Cardinal Institute in my home state of West Virginia, although she lives in Pittsburgh. Don't tell anyone. Those two things don't usually go together, of course. Sorry we're a little salty over the pit game last week. Uh, Jessica, you, you wrote about it in your piece here. Let's, let's back up for a second. One of the reasons why people push for legalization, we, we know the, the social justice part of it. We know the criminal justice part of it. We know the war on drugs part on it. There's actually a lot of studies now, and you touch on it as well. A lot of people just want this as a self-medicating option for good, valid reasons, uh, mental health reasons, depression, pain management. Is that part of this that we should probably be paying up more as like, hey, we have healthcare costs, we've got opioid addictions, things like that. This is something that could help if it's in a regulated and controlled way. Would that be a better way of approaching it than just talking about the law enforcement side of this or the culture war side of this, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And as I said in my piece, there's a very valid concern for a lot of business owners, but there's also a valid concern for consumers. Now, there are probably plenty of people that use it recreationally, but for those who maybe don't have health insurance or can't get a medical marijuana card, maybe they decided to dabble in this instead to really see if this could help their issues. And we've seen from multiple different research studies that plenty of people are actually using this to mitigate some of those mental health concerns. You don't want people just going off willy nilly with this stuff. Um, but you know, again, why can't they just write some plain language stuff like, you know, Hey, your doctor can prescribe this or your mental health care provider can prescribe this. We know the scheduling debate, which is a little bit different, but it fall, it kind of overlaps the Delta eight Delta nine thing you're touching on. Is it addressing the scheduling? Is it something that should be pushed through the healthcare side of a healthcare reform What's the best avenue to attack it when it comes to things like this? Because, you know, you even got people like the VA advocates are saying, hey, this could help our mental health folks with things like PTSD. You have people, uh, cancer patients and others like, hey, this is a pain management thing. So we can stop giving them these opioids that are causing all these other problems. 
what's the avenue to talk about this better? Because until you change the conversation, you're probably not going to get any traction on it. What's a better way to have the conversation, do you think? Yeah, again, I think starting with the farm bill and clearing up that language is a great start because right now with unclear language, and as we're seeing with law enforcement, it's being interpreted as something very legal and something we're still not allowed to do. Um, so allowing that language to be cleared up and see that it's a valid business, it's a valid product, um, will definitely start to make the changes. And then from there, we can talk about scheduling. Now, of course, the Farm Bill is a federal piece of legislation. Part of this is because the states all have their different way of dealing with it. Some of that's baked into our system. You're always going to have different laws state to state. Would it be more beneficial to do some kind of an amendment or, or fix the farm bill? They could pass, you know, you know, a one or two page fix for something like this. Just clean up language. They do that all the time. Yeah. Again, clearing up those nuances is really just, I think, the perfect start. And then from there, I think, is when state legislatures can start to act on it, whether they want to expand whatever the, the federal government decides it, those things fall under or whether they want to keep it a little bit more strict. Yeah. When you started looking at this. Did you look at the when you look at the business side of this? Do we need to tell the people story of this more? Because you know, like we've we've been talking, we've been talking about Delta Eight and Delta Nine. These are heavy terms. This is terminology. We talk stats. We talk mental health care. When you just sat down to write about this, you go across the human stories, right? You go across the businesses that are in trouble. Talk about those for a minute, because sometimes I think we get too too wonky with our policy. Talk about some of those personal stories that kind of put a face on this sort of a topic. Yeah, so uh, two states, Kentucky and Georgia, were the most recent to to have issues with this. And one of the shop owners said that it felt like it was a big a big raid, and that they were having so many drugs, and it you know it was a lot bigger of a deal than it was. Um, and then another shop owner received a letter saying that they were responsible for illicit substances that were um, causing illness or or death to children. And so it's a lot of um, pointing fingers without. A whole lot of conversation and so it's causing a lot of business owners again to really be hurt by these circumstances yeah and one of my things has always been is we should have a criminal justice system that doesn't create more criminals if we can help it and that seems to be what we're doing here um jessica debrinsky joining us what got you on this topic because you know you don't you don't accidentally google delta 8 and delta 9 variants of cvc right what is it that hits you about this as you do your research, as you work with things like Cardinal Institute and Young Voices and you're, you know, you're a freedom loving person? What sucks you into a topic like this of like this needs to be addressed? Yeah, so unfortunately, West Virginia, despite all of the good things about our state, are known for a lot of bad things, one of them being the opioid epidemic. So when I saw that Kentucky was starting to change these try to change these laws and enforce things that I knew could actually help people get off of opioids. I started to perk my ears up a little bit and research the topic a little bit more. And that's when I realized there, again, are a lot of those nuances that definitely need to be cleared up for people like uh, West Virginians. I've asked this question before, Jessica Dabrinsky joining us. Harm reduction is a tough sell to the average person because to them, it sounds like, oh, well, you're excusing criminality or you're excusing addiction or you're excusing everything. It, it's a tough sell because how do we tell people like, look, when you're dealing with addiction, when you're dealing with drug use, when you're dealing with opioids, you got to give people an intermediate step. They're not going to go from zero to 100. Talk about the harm reduction piece because you you put it in your piece on this on purpose. Because the harm reduction, that's the science part of this. 
of like, look, there's science, there's research that harm reduction. It's not a great thing. It's not even a good thing. You could argue it's a bad thing, but it's a lot less bad than this other thing. And that's the intermediate step we need. Talk about that for a minute, because I think harm reduction is something we have a hard time talking about it, but that's really going to be the key to a lot of this, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So a 2021 study um, actually said that majority of people um, that were using Delta-8 were using it for mental health purposes. And so obviously with a lot of opioid use, it it starts with mental health issues that, that can't be mitigated or a lot of feelings of hopelessness and such too. So if these are able to mitigate mental health issues, then of course it's going to help people get off of opioids as well. What can people do about this? Like there's the cliche, you know, call your senator, call your congressman, call your, you know, your legislator or your state senator or whatever the case may be. That's all well and good. How should people be discussing? Let's just start with something basic. When they talk about it on social media, just saying legalize it, that doesn't really tell anybody anything. What's a way that folks could talk about this in a productive way on their social media to kind of advance the conversation a little bit, do you think? I think the number one thing is open dialogue. I think a lot of people on both sides of the spectrum, when they hear the opposition talk about this issue, whether it's pro or against, start to get a little bit defensive. And I think there are valid concerns for for both sides, contrary to what a lot of people are willing to think. Um, And I think from there, looking at the science behind things, how it can actually help people, um, I think it will kind of break a lot of those stigmas because for a long time, we've kind of conflated marijuana use to something as crazy as heroin. Um, and that's just simply <laughs> nonsensical. So I think from, from there, we can start to really help people. All right. Back where we started. It's a complicated topic. It's a tough topic. What's the new course of action? Is it going to be legislative? Is it going to be legal action? Is it a mixture of the both? If it's a mixture, what's the ratio? Where, where do we go from here, do you think, for people that really care about this issue and want to see some you know, some kind of progress on it that's positive? Yeah, I think if legislatures or states want to do something about it tomorrow, the first thing that they can do is start to clear up their own state language and to whether say that if Delta 9 or Delta 8 is included or not until properly allow these different uh, powers to go to their Department of Agriculture. How amazing is it that we have this much problems where you have people, you know, unjustly getting arrested because the language in a bill isn't just perfect? I mean, isn't there kind of a little bit of a lesson there of like, you know, we talk about all the culture war stuff and we talk about the political wars and we talk about the buzzword you really do have to do the nuts and bolts of legislating to make government work. Is is that kind of the lesson here of like, hey, we really need to pay attention to what our legislators are doing on the boring stuff that doesn't trend and doesn't show up on our, you know, Facebooks and Twitter feeds? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's abundantly clear, too, for these issues that they think nobody cares about or are just minor things, is that every single piece of legislation needs to be fine-tuned and ensure that the intent is there. Yeah, especially when it's regulations that have the full weight and force of law behind it where people can go to jail, lose their livelihoods and lose their businesses. Uh, Jessica Dobrinsky, this is great stuff. It's a tough topic, but you wrote about it really, really well. We're going to link to the whole piece. Make sure you read the whole thing for yourself. Like we always say, she's got a lot of links in there, too. All those data and stats, she's got that all sourced. Make sure you read through that as well. Uh, we'll have you back on again because this isn't going away anytime soon. We, Like we said, the California stuff's a mess, so they're probably going to re-regulate that, and God knows where that goes. Till we get you back on the show, though, let folks know where they can keep up with you, your social media, what you've got going on with Cardinal Institute and with Young Voices, Till we see you again on Hertel. 
Yeah, so my Twitter is JLDabrinsky. Uh, last name is D-O-B-R-I-N-S-K-Y. <laughs> Many people get that uh, confused with an I. But other than uh, some of my stuff on uh, drug paraphernalia, I also focus on healthcare of certificate of need. So you can find my paper as well on that at thecardinalinstitute.com. Yep, she does good work. We're going to link to all that. You can also find her on the Young Voices page. She does great work. Another one of our great Young Voices contributors that we love to have on, Jessica Dabrinsky. We appreciate you so much. Best of luck surviving Pittsburgh. And we'll talk again real soon, my friend. Thank you so much. Take care. Welcome back to Herdtail. I know we've been talking about energy policy a lot. We've been talking about it in Europe. We've been talking about it nationwide. Let's talk about a specific locality, North Carolina, an area I'm very familiar with, because I think there's some lessons here for us to learn from everywhere else by talking to Elijah Gullett, another great Young Voices uh, contributor. Elijah, great to see you today. Thank you, sir, for having some time for us. Thank you for having me on today. Uh, Appreciate you. Being here, Let, let's start a little big picture because we've been covering this. It seems like at least once or twice a week we're talking energy policy right now. It's not just gas, though. It's not just electrical generation. I think we're, we're doing a little force for the trees thing here where we keep going into one little part of this and losing the entire big picture. Because, you know, we our friends from Germany last week, Germany and the EU by extension having terrible issues. It's because of the policies that led up to it, not just the events. The policies they had in place did not meet the events correctly. It feels like America's doing the same problem where our previous policies aren't meeting the current events. We can't fix it for the back end of it. Sure feels like we're not learning any lessons in the present, and we're just going to make this worse as we go down the road. Is that how it feels to you, too? Definitely so. Um, I think a lot of the problems with... Sorry, I'm going to repeat that. Um, Yes, definitely. I think we have sort of used a very short-term uh, perspective on energy policy, energy policy in this country, where we focus on what looks good, what's good to, uh, what makes us seem progressive, or like we're trying to pursue, pursue the, some higher uh, environmental goal, and that makes complete sense. But at the same time, we need to be thinking in the long term. What happens when these sort of uh, massive events like Russia invading Ukraine happen that will inevitably have uh, effects on the rest of the world's energy. What happens when we have environmental events that cause blackouts or make it difficult for us to get energy to people? Uh, so thinking sort of long-term is definitely necessary here. And we are already seeing California's warning about energy shortfalls. We know what happened in Texas last year, and they're warning it may happen again. We know there's not enough, the grid's not going to hold up. We just know that right now. We need more power generation. We have reduced fossil fuels. We've closed coal plants and these sort of things. We're trying to step up renewable energy, which is a finding in and of itself. Just the abject facts on the ground, there's a gap in energy production for this country because we're growing, because we don't have enough energy. Why don't we ever start with that part of the argument? It seems like we're doing this backwards where we're talking about policy stuff of what we want to happen instead of starting with, we need X amount of energy right now. How do we get it? Does that feel like the conversation is inverse to you? Because that's how it feels to me as we've covered this over and over again, is everybody's starting with, 
well, this is what we want to happen. Energy, you, you either got it or you don't. Shouldn't we start with that? It's like, hey, we need X amount of energy and we need it right now. Yeah, definitely. I think it's because people who are pushing the conversation, who are doing the policy work, are often disconnected from what the average person experiences on the ground. The average person on the ground is experiencing, you know, rising energy costs that they get um, for their electricity bills, their gas-powered bills. Every month, they're seeing still pretty high gas prices at the pump. Um, and I think people outside of, you know, middle America, regular Americans' lives aren't really feeling those effects as much. And so they can think in these bigger theoretical terms, but they're ignoring what we need now to make people's lives better. Yeah, you were writing in Carolina Journal about nuclear power. We know there's a movement where people are taking a second look at it. Some of the, you know, not to stereotype, but, you know, the previous generation, the boomers and them that really had an aversion to nuclear, they're kind of maybe softening and this new generation doesn't have the same bugaboos, but people are taking a second look at nuclear. Even the green parties in Europe are mm -hmm. starting to take a second look at nuclear. Talk about why folks push nuclear. I'm one of them. So I'm biased. I'll put that on the table. It's not just because it's a good idea. There's practical parts to this. Like we just talked about it. It's an energy source. It's a clean energy source. It's got a lot of upfront costs, so it's not perfect. But when you're talking about grids and you're talking about the issues we're having, consistent long-term energy generation, there's just nothing quite as good as nuclear that we have in the arsenal right now, is there? Definitely not. I mean, it's not perfect. Like you said, there's a lot of upfront costs. It's not always economical, especially with large power plants. But it is some of the things that made coal, coal gas so uh, convenient and uh, sustainable, not environmentally, but sort of you know, always having a consistent source of energy available. And also the goals that we have with renewable energy. It's a clean energy source. It produces it's zero carbon emissions. It's not just the carbon emissions, though, is it? Because, again, let, let's just stay on the practical level, because I think we get into the policy and the buzzwords too much and we kind of lose sight of this. You got to put electricity in people's homes. It's mm -hmm. not just that it's clean energy. It's consistent and it's clean. And you need those two things together because when you're talking about environmental policies, one of the beefs, and I think it's a legitimate criticism of new renewable energy is like, look, the windmills don't always turn. The sun doesn't always shine for solar. You, they're good technologies, but energy has to be consistent. And energy policy has to be consistent. And if you're not going to burn fossil fuels, which we know that can be consistent because that's the supply chain for the last 150 years in this country, this is the route to go. Talk about the practical application of nuclear power. You know, things like cost, things like just getting it generated. This sort of things is the part we don't seem to talk about very much, does it? Yes. And a lot of the problem with energy and nuclear energy production is rooted in federal uh, bureaucracy, to be frank. Uh, the Nuclear uh, Regulatory Commission has recently been... Uh, helping to close down or try to push for the closing down of nuclear plants in states like Florida. Thankfully, North Carolina still has three nuclear plants that are actively running that already employ people. It is already providing about a third of energy production in North Carolina at this moment. And it's already proving to be a consistent source. If we can amp that up, especially in light of Roy Cooper's uh, and the uh, North Carolina House's recent bill, uh, HB 951. Uh, this would be a great opportunity for us to meet both the needs of regular North Carolinians and meet our carbon emission goals.
Now, we know there is political uh, parts to this. North Carolina is a little unique. It is very much a battleground kind of state politically. You have a Democratic governor. You have a uh, Republican um, legislature. Little less, it's not the supermajority it was a few years ago, but still strongly Republican. Uh, this is a state that Donald Trump won. This is a state with a too-close-to-call Senate race right now. This is a battleground state by any definition of the word. Should we be looking at it, though, and pointing to things like California keeping Diablo Diablo Canyon open? That's one of the most progressive states in the country, and they're even saying, look, we've got to go this route. Can we use those kind of examples to try to cut through some of the some of the partisanship here and go, look, libertarian, conservative, progressive, purple hippopotamus, you need electricity in your house, and this is the way we need to go. Yes, definitely. I mean, California uh, recent work with Diablo Canyon is perfect example of this because it shows that even in a state where, which was literally where anti-nuclear movements were born in the United States, are still being a are frankly being forced to by the realities on the ground to allow and uh, continue to provide nuclear energy, and this can provide as a source of uh, this. Sorry, oh, at that point, this can be a great. Um, point in North Carolina that we don't want to end up on the same route that California is where they're trying to, where they have to make these really kind these hard decisions about what they keep open. We can keep being on this pro-nuclear route that we've already and continue to increase production of that to meet these goals that we've set out in HB 951 without making the types of hard compromises that California has. What about, again, a state like North Carolina? This is an opposite coast. It's a coastal area. People on the coastal areas, which are growing fast, Brunswick County is one of the fastest growing counties in the entire country. Raleigh Durham is one of the fastest growing urban areas in the country. These are people that, whether they're conservative or progressive, are also very environmentally conscious. We see that down in Wilmington, where I, where this radio program goes out. Even the conservative folks are more environmentally conscious than others because they live in, you know, they live in a very amazing place with the Carolina coastline. How do we pitch environment? Because to so many on the right, environmentalism has become a bad word. But this kind of environmentalism with nuclear power and clean energy and consistent energy, we should be able to pitch that to the conservation part of the right wing, and they should just fit that like a glove. How do we use that terminology and meld it? Because I think sometimes the nomenclature gets in our own way of this conversation, doesn't it? It definitely does. And there's great work being done on this from organizations like the American Conservation Coalition uh, that are working to... Uh, who are working with Republicans to develop conservative climate policies um, and use language that makes more sense to conservatives and Republican voters on environmental issues. And I think nuclear energy, once again, is this great bridge between environmentalist and the conservative movement, because you can also sort of bring in this economic perspective. This is a great way to create jobs, create infrastructure, and uh, free especially for the state of North Carolina, to remain this incredibly economically uh, growing state. Yeah, we're talking to Elijah Gullett. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to continue to talk about energy, his piece in North Carolina. It's also got an op-ed out about clean energy transition, how to make it a little bit easier. And the problem ain't us and the problem ain't the media. Once again, that R word regulation, it's all in the details how these sort of things work. Elijah Gullett continues to join us on Hertel right after this.
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, we're back with Elijah Gullett on Herd Tell. That's him. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Glad you're sticking with us. We're talking energy uh, once again. Again, I think just about at least once a week for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about energy with a guest. But it's that important because everybody uses it. And it's one of the big costs that everybody has because your electric bill, especially if you live, you know, places like North Carolina where you have a hot summer, that's one of your major expenses after your house and your car. That's probably the next biggest thing you pay. How do we, we talk the political, we talk the policy. Economically, though, this has a great impact. That's why everybody's talking about energy. That's why Europe's in a panic right now with winter coming and, and their fuel bills are going through. And we just talked to our German friends where they're stealing fire from Germany, which I can't imagine. Talk about the economic side of this, because let's just be real. Let's be grown folk here. People don't pay attention to economic issues unless it starts to hurt or affect them, right? Energy policy is definitely affecting people. We saw the gas prices over the summer. That's kind of subsiding a little bit. But winter prices, rolling blackouts, this stuff gets people politically engaged in a great big hurry, don't it? Definitely so. Um, and I think, you know, a really idealistic form of energy policy is only going to make that worse. Focusing on sort of exclusively on these bigger goals that we have in regards to carbon emissions, as great as those goals are and as much as we do need to meet them, we can't ignore the facts on the ground. We can't ignore the day-to-day needs of Americans and regular people. We can't ignore the fact that people need to light their homes, be able to cook dinner, you know, do the basic drive to work, all the basic things that we do on a day-to-day basis. One of those day-to-day basis things, though, um, is <laughs> we've been covering on our show, I, I call it governing by inertia. The bureaucratic state just keeps rolling along regardless of what we do, and it does it day-to-day whether we pay attention to it or don't. We pay attention to it during things like COVID because all of a sudden we realize how regulation works. You were writing, and you wrote a piece in the Center Square. We'll link to this and his other piece. Make sure you read the whole thing for yourself and share it. You wrote about the regulation of energy. We know the Texas blackout, that came because of regulation. We know the California threat of blackouts. A lot of that has to do with regulation. Talk about regulation, because that's the piece of this that people don't really see, but they feel it. But there's a disconnect there, isn't there, where folks aren't putting those two things together too often. Yeah. So in my article, I focus on the National Environmental Protection Act. Uh, This is a 1970s legislation that basically allows um, any activist group to use the courts to stop projects that they believe might damaging. Now, the law has not has sometimes produced better outcomes than otherwise. It's been able to prevent genuinely polluting or dangerous development in residential neighborhoods. But at the same time, it has been used to block energy, including things like nuclear. Uh, and these types of regulations, I think, made sense in one part, in one you know time in our history, but make less sense now when we have these better technologies where, you know, we need clean energy, we need nuclear energy, we also need solar and wind that are also being blocked by things like NEPA. 
Um, and these laws desperately need to be reformed so we can do the kinds of energy production that we're going to need to both meet people's day-to-day -day needs with energy and also meet our own carbon goals. And you talked about it in your other piece on nuclear power in North Carolina at the Colorado Journal, but it applies to this piece as well and applies to this whole conversation. It's not that we don't want renewable energy. Energy needs to be like a lot of other complex problems. Your your pet thing isn't going to solve the entirety of the problem. And you wrote about it in your language, and I think it's the right terminology. You talk about this needs to be an all-of-the-above approach. Well, what hinders all-of-the-above is regulation, right? Oftentimes, yes. Um, so like I mentioned, you know, laws like NEPA as well as some other federal regulations and state level NEPAs often are in the way of us doing, like I said, the clean energy production that we need. Uh, they're used to block uh, both solar, wind, natural gas and nuclear all the time. Uh, and if we want to do an all of the above approach, which I believe we need in order to meet both basic human needs and environmental goals, we're going to need to loosen up some of these things or to at least reform these types of regulations to meet modern day needs. These are outdated regulations. They desperately need reform. Now, you're a UNC Chapel Hill guy. Uh, for the purposes of this conversation, we're not going to hold that against you. Uh, <laughs> however, um, talk about how this is being discussed by the current generation coming up through college, because like you said, the anti-nuclear stuff really started on college campuses in the 60s and 70s. Not, for, not, And to be fair to them, not for ungood reason. The Cold War, people were scared. You had some events that, you know, scared people. I get that. So, I, you know, I don't want to just overly bash them. People are products of their times. What's the current rising generation? Because it does feel like even progressive folks, even environmental folks, there seems to be a change here. You were on UNC's college campus. You're still plugged into that community. Is that real or is that just something in the media? I think that shift you're noticing is definitely real. Uh, so as a student at UNC, I took quite a lot of environmental policy and energy policy classes. And it was really interesting that you'd have a range of students, regardless of their ideological positions, recognize that nuclear was a good thing, that nuclear was clean energy, we needed more of it, and it was a great way to meet both the basic needs that I mentioned, as well as a lot of our clean energy goals. Uh, I think that anti-nuclear thing was mostly the result of a very specific type of very, let's just say boomer uh, activism from the 60s and 70s. And it probably doesn't hold as much anymore. And I think modern day environmental groups need to basically kind of get up with the times, you know? I don't think young people are motivated by anti-nuclear things anymore. I, I find, you tell me, because we're I'm a little bit older than you, so we're different generations a little bit. Um, I think environmentalism, and I know that word's gotten moved, and climate change, and green policy, and conservation, you know, the way I was raised rural in West Virginia, conservation's a big deal because we want to keep our state pristine and grew up in the woods and things like this. Whatever terminology you want to put on it, I think this is the one issue that I see people getting more and more heterodox on. I see more and more crossover on it. I already mentioned in Wilmington, you get people that are, you know, even really conservative people. They, they're really touchy on environmental issues. You see progressive people that, you know, maybe they get real interested in school choice issues after COVID. I think there's a real chance to do some bipartisan stuff on environmentalism. If we go past the buzzwords and we get to what we all want, which is a nicer place to live with better energy options. And we take care of both, you know, the environment and we conserve it for future generations, but we also take care of ourselves economically. I think those things can all go together. 
give me a couple things language wise, because a lot of this is going to be how we discuss it on social media. Let's be honest amongst ourselves. It's not going to be the policy and the white paper and the wonky stuff. How should people be talking about this to each other, just common folks to push the ball forward on things like conservation and environmentalism? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we can talk about preserving American landscapes. I think this is something we can all agree on. All of us want to see, you know, America is this large, beautiful country with lots of natural land that's barely touched by people. I think all of us can agree that this is something we all care about. Even if we disagree on the specifics of policy, none of us want us to, you know, destroy our natural national parks or our, um, you know, Smoky Mountains or anything like that. Uh, so I think talking about it in terms of American land and preserving American land is something we can all agree on. Um, I think, and also kind of brings in this patriotic aspect. Uh, I also think talking about it in terms of economic growth or jobs or uh, things like that is a really good opportunity. The way that in, uh, environmental policies like green energy production and battery production and environment and electric vehicles e-bikes or anything like this can bring new jobs into our community. This is another great opportunity for us to, I think, reach across the aisle for people who care more about the environmental stuff and people who care more about the economic stuff. All right, so the, the side part of that, Elijah Gullick continues to join us, is that's what we do in our language. We have to put that into black and white somewhere. I think one other piece of this that's kind of been missing because I, you know, I just sit here and talk about this stuff, but I talk to knowledgeable people like you about it. Something I've noticed is I think we forget that there's multiple layers of government here. You mentioned it and you've mentioned it in your advocacy and some of the stuff you write in, though. There's really three different layers to this to advance. There's the federal stuff that everybody pays attention to because we have a nationalized media. There's a lot of things local and state level that people could get involved in, especially at the local level, because environmental stuff, those, those meetings are usually not as well attended as like the school board riots we've been seeing. And I'm using that a little facetiously. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of things local level you can do environmentally and for the and for conservation and people just don't take advantage of it. There's stuff at the state level you can do. We need all three of those things looking and firing on all cylinders for this. And part of that is engagement with folks doing things at a local level. And that doesn't seem to be getting discussed as much, does it? Yeah, for sure. I think in a lot of ways, we need to renew this idea, sort of an old school environmental idea that planting trees and taking care of your backyard matters a lot and can make a really big difference. So trees are a major uh, source for carbon sequestration. And, uh, you know, even just getting your friends together, cleaning up a park, planting some trees, learning about your natural environment and what's happening around you, all of that can make a difference. And I think it's something that gets lost a lot of times in the modern environmental movement. So you're saying all that Arbor Day tree planting we did back in the 80s and 90s was not for naught? I mean, yeah, definitely. <laughs> we need more of that. Is that uh, still I think a thing? It, do they still do that? I think some organizations do. I know a few uh, organizations that still do that kind of work. So, yeah. That was a big thing when I was a kid. We every you know, you had to go out and plant trees and such, but and we had plenty of trees where I grew up in West Virginia, trust me, but still. Uh Elijah Gallo joining us, having a little fun with it. Uh one more thing on this environmental thing. Um, we use North Carolina's example. We talked about California. That's a battleground state and that's a deep blue state. 
we have a lot of deep red states and an environmentalism, like we said, is kind of a dirty word. We, we, we already talked about this a little bit, but put a political spin on it because it's not going to be a hot button issue because the economy and of course we got other political things going on. What would you like to see from some politicians on the right that would start showing like, hey, you can not only talk about this, but you could talk about it in a way of talking about responsible government and government accountability and job creation and all these other auxiliary issues how would you like to see the right kind of address this better as they start campaigning over the next couple of cycles? Yeah, so I think the first one is sort of a lot of those permitting reforms as regulations I was talking about before. I think this is something that both the left and the right can really work together on, is seeing the way that a lot of the regulations we have in place are inhibiting the kinds of environmental goals we want to meet, as well as our economic goals. They're also making it harder to get uh, energy production jobs happening on the ground. And I think this would be one really good tool that a lot of uh, Republicans in deep red states could use to talk about and also reach across the aisle. I think another topic that um, Republicans could be working on right now would be on uh, green energy production. This kind of goes in hand with the regulation and but talking more about how we can get good jobs in this country, how we can incentivize the market to produce green energy in this country in our own without having to depend on Saudi Arabia or Russia or other countries for uh, fuel or anything that we currently do. Yeah, Elijah Gallet, outstanding information on energy. Uh, you're new to the program, but you're a friend. We will have you back. But friends hold friends accountable, so I have to point out something to you. On your Twitter feed, on August the 30th, you wrote, and I quote, everyone I know woke up exhausted today which I think was socially engineered by Starbucks for Pumpkin Spice Latte Day. Elijah Gollett, defend your tweet. <laughs> I literally, everyone I work with and everyone I was talking to do that, that day was like literally exhausted. And for me, at least, it definitely incentivized me to go get coffee because that was the day that they dropped like all their fall drinks or whatever. And I was like, well, I'm already exhausted. I need, I desperately need more caffeine. I guess I might as well go get one. It's hap It's right there. It's right across from my house. I'll just do go do it. Yeah, I'm. Of course, I can't drink coffee if I want to, but I like to poke the coffee drinkers. And of course, I've got teen girls, and they always want to go to Starbucks for school. But I, we were joking that there's a there's two Americas. There's the America that summer ends sometime in the middle of September, and then there's summer ends that when they bring out all the pumpkin spice and school starts. That's when summer actually ends. Like when I went in Harris Teeter and they reel out the entire palette of pumpkin spice Cheerios, I was like, up oh, summer's over. And then school starts. <laughs> That's the real break for me. What about you? <laughs> I'm definitely in that category. I like fall way more than summer. I'm, I'm I wanted to happen sooner rather than later. So I, I am a fall guy. I I don't even like wearing shorts. I like a little bit of chilly weather. Great football. Football's back. I love fall, man. Fall's the best for me. Of course, I grew up in West Virginia, so the, the, that leaf change. If you've never lived where it's just a blanket of green, and then all of a sudden you get all the collars, it's it's absolutely amazing. Elijah Gallet, really have enjoyed this. Uh, we're going to have you back, but until folks get you on Hertel again, let them know where they can follow you, what you have going on, and how they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again. Yep. So you can follow me at marketurbanists on twitter.com. Uh, you can also see my work uh, with the American Conservation Coalition, where I'm a branch leader for the Raleigh Durham area. Yep, which is a darn fine place to be in the fall, summer, not so much. But Raleigh Durham in the fall, I'm getting ready to spend some time in Durham here this 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 fall, but it's not going to be pleasant, unfortunately. But uh great city in the fall if you never had a chance to visit it. Uh 
Elijah, great stuff. Really appreciate the conversation. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, sir. Take care. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.